Bob, we do this thing called jazz hands. Oh, in I've here, seen that. jazz hands. Yeah, there we go. Jazz hands from Rob Pincus. He's not cool to do jazz. He's not too cool to do jazz hands. We are live. I hope you got your big girl panties on, the the bulletproof kind, because our special guest tonight is none other than the Rob Pincus, and it's going to get real. It's going to get real. Have you seen Bad Boys 2? Have you seen Bad Boys or Bad Boys 2? I think I saw the original. Yeah, okay, there you go. So, you know, they, they have that line where, like, the cameras are swinging around them, and they're like, shit just got real. <laughs> I like you sh- it should have cut to some kind of a montage video after you said it's going to get real. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, we are not that. We are not that produced over here. All right. Well, I just I was ready for it. I didn't want to interrupt it. Oh, oh no. I mean, we are not that. I'm just not that good, Rob. Just in case you don't know. One well, actually, it's one of the reasons I don't do a video podcast thing like this because I would want that, and I also have no idea how to do it. So right. There probably is a way. I'm sure someone looking at this is like, you idiots, that's easy. But, you know, whatever. You know, I am not that person. All right. Well, so, well, since we don't have that, let's talk. Absolutely. Yes. And I, I don't have any set uh, plan thing to talk about. We, we have Pincus for the entire hour. I don't know. Do you do you does, does it bother you if anyone calls you Pincus? Shall I call you Rob Pincus? Rob, Robbie P is popular yeah. back in the East Coast. Yeah. Rob PP, <laughs> really? Rob PP, uh, yeah, <laughs> okay. Why <laughs> Yeah, so um, you know that's what we're gonna do. We're just gonna talk. You guys can let us know. Um, shout out to everyone that's watching right now. Also, I'd like to ask all you guys to please click the thumbs ups. We really need those thumbs ups to let the folks out there know that we are here. You know, that's a, a metric. I know someone was asking me before we went on air, like, why do you have to click the thumbs ups? Because we need it. We need it. And if it doesn't hurt you too much to just like reach over and press that thumbs up button, we appreciate you doing it. If you hate us, if you hate me or if you hate Rob, I don't know how you can hate all this sexiness right here. I don't know how that's possible, but. That's why I changed my lower third to Robbie P because it's harder to hate Robbie P. Yeah, exactly. There you go. Robbie P in the house, yo. So, but hey, if you hate us, click the thumbs downs, whatever. It's all good. Um, Also, share this with friends and family. Let them know that we are having a, this is an epic episode, I think, in in my mind. I never thought I would get you to come on the show, Rob, but um, I'm. You guys ask. I was excited about it. I was glad that we got to spend some time together in Atlanta, you know, before the holidays because that kind of an interaction for me is is really, it's quick and easy for me to figure out if I want to hang out with somebody or talk to somebody or work with somebody like this, collaborate, because there, that really is what that whole, you know, 12 hour day was. Yeah. A lot of people just kind of being honest, it, you, no one was hiding in that room. You know, if you were in that room, you got an idea of who you were in there with. And I oh, yeah. And you, you know, you see, for me, it wasn't like too difficult because I'm, I'll, you know, I guess... I hate to I hate to tell you this, Rob, but you know I'm kind of like the black guy, so you know. <laughs> so for anyone who doesn't know what we're talking about, there was an event in Atlanta put on by uh, Black Guns Matter, Maj Touré, right? And um, it was, you know, he's trying to reach out to the community. That's Maj's thing. I think it's a it's a very cool thing. He was trying to reach out to the community. So at Stoddard's, was it Stoddard's? Yes. Uh, yeah. 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 Very nice range in Atlanta. We all met up there 
And there were lots of cool folks in the room. I think there's a video that's floating around out there. And we were talking about lots of different things, including racism and stuff like that. It was kind of easy, I think, for me to be in the room. Kind of. I don't know. How was it for you, Rob? Uh, Yeah, I I don't usually feel um, uncomfortable unless I'm not uh, being me, right? When I I get uncomfortable, when maybe there's expectations from people in the room that I'm going to fit into some kind of a mold, they brought me in like, we just want you to talk about this, not this stuff over here. Just, just you do this thing today. Yeah. That, I feel a little hemmed in other. That was a free for all. So I was, I was, I felt very comfortable. I think once that first question and you were really, and it, it actually made that highlight reel, that little teaser, that three minute teaser that's going around. You were really instrumental in saying something that I think I had maybe just tried to say very early on, maybe a set, you know, two minutes before you said it, but you said it so much more succinctly, which is hey, racism exists everywhere. So, think it's not in the gun community you're just already wrong right because mm-hmm. it's everywhere yeah. and since it's everywhere the gun community is just a, a subset of our own you know national community and world community it has to be there question is what are we doing about it and if what we're doing is is ignoring it or pretending it's not there we're never going to fix anything yeah right? absolutely and i think at the same time people should acknowledge that um even though it exists in the gun community like it does in any other community, most of us in the gun community, we're just about the Second Amendment, man. Right. I think that's what it comes down to. You know, we, we realize like this has to be for everyone. It has to be. But I think by by pretending, well, that, of course it is. You know, I don't bring anything to the table that wouldn't make it for everyone. Well, mm-hmm. you know, there's that one meme that goes around. that's like I, I want the. uh homosexual couple to be able to defend their atheist child and their pot uh, with their guns. And that'll be freedom, right? Mm -hmm. Like that. And, and that kind of messaging has to come out and has to be put out there to make people think, because I do think too often the politics of guns are intermingled with the politics of social conservative conservatism, the politics of um, law and order, the politics of even our national defense and to me, those things are, are incredibly segmented and separated. You know, I, I've been on a thing this week where uh, it looks like Vermont is very soon going to sign a law. Vermont's going to change their position on recreational marijuana. Okay. Now, they're not going to go all the way to like Colorado or what's just wrapped up. It's legal to use all that. They're going to do non-commercial legalization. So, you know, Vermont was the first constitutional carry state personal freedom issues right now in the United States of America that are still being left to the states to handle that the federal government or Supreme Court hasn't ruled on, uh, at least not ruled strongly enough on, are the legalization of marijuana and the constitutional carry, the right to keep and bear arms without a state level infringement. Uh, So I'm looking for that first state that is constitutional carry and no restrictions on the use of recreational marijuana. I'm not saying those two things belong together. Right. They're very separate issues, but they are both personal freedom issues. And I call hypocrisy on anybody who's fighting for one and not the other on the basis of freedom. Right. right? So do you. So, okay. so where's so where's Vermont right now when it comes to marijuana? They are for recreational already. I'm There was their medical their um, recreational use is completely restricted. Mm -hmm. But it looks like they're going to sign a law that is non-commercial legalizations. What that would mean is you could have. Plants in your backyard for your own personal use, but you couldn't sell it, distribute it. 
Okay. All right. Cool. So, um, and and then of course, and then where are they with concealed carry? Uh, they were the first constitutional carry state. Okay. So when I moved up there in 1990, I could legally carry, uh, even though I couldn't, you know, I wasn't 21, uh, but I moved up there to go to college and they didn't have any restrictions on carry if you could legally own. Oh, okay. Uh, where, and so where are you right now? What, what state are you in? Uh, or is that in Colorado? You're in Colorado. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, listen, I, I agree with you, man. You know, I'm not necessarily, I, I, well, not even necessarily, I never smoke weed ever in my life. Uh, but I don't have any problem with people doing that. Um, there's lots of things I think that are legal and are worse than that. Of course, I believe people should be responsible when they do things right. Just like driving or anything else, you know, and I agree with you in terms of it being a freedom issue and they kind of go together but we don't, we always see, just like we're talking about different camps can't get along and work together. I think this is one of the camps that doesn't always get along and work together, even though these two things you would think mean freedom. And to me, that's okay. But what, what I, I, you don't have to support legalization of marijuana. You don't have to support same sex marriage. You don't have to support, support the right to have an abortion in order to support the second amendment. Mm-hmm. But then don't confuse your fight for the right to keep and bear arms with those other socially conservative issues that way too often get all lumped in together. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. it's like the liberal gun, gun owners. As soon as you post anything about the liberal gun owners club or any of that kind of stuff, a lot of the, the internet rhetoric will be, oh, there's no way someone could vote for Hillary Clinton and still be positive on the second amendment. And I just, to me, that is, that is naive. It's a politically naive statement to make. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and we do. I mean, listen, I'm probably one of those people that makes that sometimes, you know, because, listen, I have family members that, for example, live in New York and they're pro gun, but they're also like pro Hillary or whatever. And um, and I think the question that people want to ask out there is like, how do you put those two things together? You know, how do you say, like, supporting Hillary supports, um, you know, supports the Second Amendment? And unfortunately, I can't like I get I get invited on the podcast. I get to mm-hmm. go to events. I get to talk to people all the time. I can't answer those questions because I don't hold yeah. value, right? I'm not yeah. I like pro Hillary, but I understand how someone could be, and I've mm-hmm. had a lot of conversations directly with people. Yeah. Who, you know, now they may they may not be for constitutional carry either, but th- there's such a small degree of education to get them to understand why constitutional carry is important that mm-hmm. to write them off because they also want national health care or they want same-sex marriage, same-sex marriage, or they want the right to an abortion, or they want legalized marijuana, to write them off as an ally in mm-hmm. the against gun control or against further infringement, I think is, is foolish on our part. Yeah. And, and I think, um, you know, I think it's happening a lot and I, I think I understand why, but ultimately if you believe in freedom, then you believe in freedom and people are free to do lots of things, right? As long as you're not hurting somebody else, right? And uh, from the law enforcement perspective, you know, I'm with you on, I'm not, not, you know, not high, uh, but <laughs> I've seen a lot of people who are high and I've seen a lot of people who are drunk in interacting with law enforcement. And I've seen a lot more problems from people intoxicated with alcohol than I ever have in, in terms of interpersonal problems and mm-hmm. drama that gets created uh, yeah. with people who have drunk uh, way too much, you know? And I was a reserve deputy for a long time in Southwestern Colorado. I still am. 
uh, though I'm not there quite as often as I used to be when I was living there and I was more active in the law enforcement community, you know, marijuana was de facto legal in a lot of areas in Southwestern Colorado mm-hmm. long before the state made it official. Right. So having, and I'm, I come back from a very conservative approach to, to drugs, which is, Hey, it's illegal. It's not even worth considering. Like, it's not a thing. Like that shouldn't be in your life. And the law says this. So there mm-hmm. and working for the sheriff who in 1992 or sorry, 2002 wrote the book literally you know, what was wrong with the war on drugs, a libertarian sheriff who's, who's been in office for 30 years down there, 30 plus years, um, really opened my eyes to a, a different perspective and, and seeing it, seeing it day to day, seeing that, it, you know, it wasn't reefer madness, you know, propaganda just because people were smoking marijuana and that there was a lot less problems caused than there were with alcohol. I mean, I, I put my gun up when I drink, right? And people mm-hmm. know I like my wine, I like my whiskey, I like my cocktail, I like my ciders. You like I your champagne for the haters? I assume that if someone is out there legally using recreational marijuana, that my advice to all the people I know who drink and carry and, and own guns to put the guns away when you're going to be drinking, that obviously my advice would go the same way for the person who was going to be smoking marijuana, put the gun away. Yeah. I think right now we're in this really confusing moment where the federal government hasn't budged. The state governments are moving very quickly and unfortunately, gunners are getting caught in the middle because now even the medical marijuana, people who have been prescribed this by a physician are being caught in the middle because the ATF saying no go on Form 4473s. You can't really yeah. own the gun. And I think we got, we had something in the news about this. Um, Sessions, uh, this is on, I'm getting this from lots of different places, but this particular one's on CNN. Uh, Sessions nixes Obama era rules leaving states alone that legalize pop. You know, um, so I, I guess he rescinded um, he rescinded today a trio of memos from the Obama administration that adopted a policy of non-interference with marijuana friendly state laws. Oh, that's new. That's breaking news since I've been busy today. Yeah. You know, so and this you know what I think, honestly, you know, what's at the core of this, man? There's too many freaking laws. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> regulation. And a federal system is going to get you're going to have states that are different from the, each other under that federal umbrella. But when you start having states that are contradicting the federal umbrella and you end up in these exact situations, these very gray areas where the Obama administration probably didn't take action. Mm-hmm. Definitely did not take action. They sort of sat on the sidelines of it, this idea of non-interference. So. I'm not, I don't like gray areas. When the whole thing was going on, like I've got one of my house ARs set up here with a uh, brace, right? Mm-hmm. We all understand what this is for. I, I, I keep a tourniquet in there, but theoretically this is for being, you know, lodged onto my arm to stabilize my gun if I'm only using one hand. But this can make a really nice improvised brace against my body also, right? right. Hold a gun in this way. And we all get that. And that's, not creating an SBR and the ATF is now today, they've said, no, you aren't creating an SBR by, by doing that. However, it's still kind of a gray area because it's their executive branch interpretation of a law. It's, and they could reverse that again. Like they've already reversed it twice. I don't like those things back when they were, there was a lot of talk a couple years ago about the ATF defining what it means to be a dealer, maybe putting a number on it. If you, Mm -hmm. if you had more than 50 gun transactions a year, you need to be licensed. I'm all for defining it because what I don't want is for somebody to get hemmed up in that gray area and end up going to jail because of it. I want you to define it and tell me, you know, this is that, this is the other thing, pick a side. And if, if you, if I think you're wrong, then let's fight to change the law. 
Mm-hmm. But gray area is not where I want to be living. Yeah, and I think I think there's just too many laws. I mean, for example, we're going to run into that same problem when it comes to uh, bump stocks, right? Or slide fire or whatever you want to call it, right? Already, I think Massachusetts was the first state to now outlaw them. Uh, and it may have already taken place. Or maybe there's an amnesty right now and it's, it's taken, taken yeah. goes into effect in February. Um, it'll be interesting to see, you know, where that plays out. Yeah, because um, I think that um, I think the ATF, if I'm not mistaken, someone out there can let me know. I know this is in the news. The ATF is going to go back and revisit that whole thing, because right. when they originally looked at, at, at these stocks, they said, hey, these are legal. Right. right? Um, it's it's similar to what's out there with uh, triggers and things like that. It's if it's separate actions that are taking place. So you pull the trigger and it's one complete operation. Right. It fires or you release it and it fires or you have a bump stock or whatever it is. And it fires. It's not a machine gun. You know, now when they start, when, when because of political pressure and stuff that happened in the news, they go in there and then they decide, oh, we've got to now figure out a way to make this illegal because people don't like it. This is, this is why we're running into all these damn problems. There's just too many, there's too many laws. Like, why do we even have the SBR law? Right, right. Uh, and what is it, what is it, does it really make sense in 2018 that, this is keeping anyone safer. Is it keeping anyone safer? And I'm, I'm kind of a diehard for the, it's not the inanimate object. Mm-hmm. It's not the way period. It's not the background check. It's the person. And I don't believe we can magically fix people. I think we're always going to have people who are mentally ill. We're always going to have people who are uh, delusional, who are irrational. There's going to be evil uh, in the world. Yes. And as long as there's things, they will use the things to be evil. Well, or they use their hands, like like they they use their brains, like there is evil in the world. And what we need to do is educate people around that fact, educate people to be prepared for that fact, train and practice and be vigilant. Just like we we talk about fire, we talk about pollution, we talk about the appropriate use of prescription drugs, we talk about the appropriate use of alcohol, Um, drive, you know, driver's education, safe and safe drive. Why just talking about, hey, somebody might try to hurt you, you should be prepared to defend yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wish we could actually, you know, I know this is like a pipe dream. (laughs) Speaking of drugs, (laughs) I wish we could just simplify things in America, man. I think there's too many laws, even some of the laws that people that maybe they're on the other. They're not on the other side for me. Like, I don't care what people's sexual orientation is. I don't care what their religion is. You know, there's a lot of things like that that I feel like it's none of my business. Right. You know, who you get married to or whatever. But this all of these problems come out of freaking laws. And what's funny about it is some of those some of those people who want to change these laws. So anyone, you know, people could just marry whoever they want to, you know, also want to, you know, they they want to, like, get rid of they're trying to get rid of laws that were put into place. They said that said you can't marry whoever you want to. Right. You know, and then they want to come in and go, oh, you know what? But we want to make new laws saying who can have this, who can own this, you know, and that's where we're not getting together and seeing that really, really when it boils that we are all different people. We all live our lives. There's things that we all want to do and that um, encompasses what we individually feel is happiness. But I think we really at the core of it could agree that we have too many laws you know, and and we just all really want to be free and be left alone by the government. Yep, it, it should be the the almost not how it's the act that the act that you commit, not the way you commit it, is what mm-hmm. should be judged, right? Like if you're if you're mm-hmm. 
trying to hurt somebody, if you're trying to defraud somebody, if you're trying to, uh, if you, something you do endangers someone, mm-hmm. the fact that you endangered someone is what I'm concerned about. I don't care if you endangered someone by driving while you were intoxicated or by uh, using a piece of machinery inappropriately, mm-hmm. or you're a, you're a builder and you built the building wrong. Like, mm-hmm. if you go back to like a, from a 10 commandments kind of standpoint, right? Like even like something very rudimentary in, in human social development, these, these things, it didn't matter if you, like how you adultered or it didn't matter how you murdered. It was, it was these, it was those things. It didn't matter how you stole, but now it was stolen, stole, stole. But now we're talking about <laughs> was it robbery or was it burglary, right? right. Mm-hmm. Was it, you know, uh, a felonious robbery, yeah. petty theft. Was it shoplifting or was it, you know what? It doesn't, you stole something, man. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. That's we've made it. We've made all these things way too complicated. You know, way too complicated, I think. And we were talking about Oregon Oregon in the beginning, right? I don't know how you say Oregon. I say, do I say Oregon or Oregon? I don't know. I, I mix it up. Isn't that what we were just talking about in the beginning? Which state we were talking about? Vermont, but we can talk about oh, Oregon. Oh, we were talking, okay. We were talking about Vermont. But in Oregon, for example, <laughs> I wanted to bring this up because I was just thinking about it when you were talking to me. You know about the gas pumping thing, right? I'm from New Jersey, right? And New Jersey is the only other state that doesn't let you pump their own. Yes. I lived in New Jersey for quite some time. Yeah, yeah now, my kids, my kids were actually born there, and you're not allowed to pump your own gas in New Jersey. But there's people there in Oregon that are mad that now they have to pump their own gas. <laughs> well, they don't have to. Like, I'm sure there's still going to be a full service lane for a while, right? Like, they can yeah. pay a little extra. What What amazes me now? Uh, here's the thing: I kind of get it. Like, I get the fact that I know someone. I'm not going to embarrass anybody on international video, but I know someone who spent most of their life in New Jersey who put diesel fuel into their gasoline powered vehicle because they had to pump their own gas in a state in the Midwest while they were traveling and almost like, you know, destroyed the vehicle and it was not convenient. So I get it. Like if you don't ever do that and now you have to do it and you know, somebody tells you the green one is diesel, don't use the green one, but then you go to a BP station and they're all green now I get confused. Like it's, you got to kind of figure it out, right? Mm-hmm. They will, like, they'll be okay. Mm-hmm. But it, it is amazing to me how much of the internet was all fired up the last couple of days about the uh, Oregon gas crisis. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's weird. Listen, I remember a time, long time ago, I saw this boyfriend and girlfriend and the boyfriend was insist. They were at a gas station. I was across the street and the boyfriend was insisting that she learned how to pump her own gas so he got out. He refused to pump the gas for her. He was trying to show her. And I stood there for like 10 minutes listening to this woman curse this guy out. <laughs> you know, like, how dare you <laughs> make me try to pump my own gas? You know, just on and on and on. But but once again, I, I think like you were saying, man, you know, you are free to not pump your own gas if you don't want to. Like, go pay, pay expert or go like pull up in the gas station and go to that guy and say, hey, can I just give you $10 cash? Put my, put my gas for me. I, I, do what you want, man. But, but yeah. don't. The I'm idea, sure there'll be some street hustlers that would love to. Right. For me, I'm frustrated in New Jersey and Oregon, and I spend time driving in both states every year. I get frustrated mm-hmm. because they won't let you pump your own gas, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I was in a little place in the middle of nowhere in Oregon this last year where it was like, it was, um, well, I don't know what weekend it was, but for whatever reason, it was a holiday weekend. There were lots of people out. And it was a little lake community up in the mountains. And there was one, you know, it was one little island. And literally it was one older lady, you know, in her sixties 
going back and forth inside and outside, trying to run the cash register at this little mom and pop shop and pump. Oh, the wow. Yeah. With like five cars waiting. It's just like, come on, I, I, yeah. just, can I do this. Cause if I, you'll, I'll pump the gas for everybody. Let's get this moving. Mm-hmm. But you know, you're not allowed to. So that gets yeah. a little yeah, no. In Jersey, it really wasn't bad because Jersey is one of the cheapest places in America for gas. For sure. Yeah. But I mean, I grew up in New York where if you had to pay someone to pump your gas in New York, you're going to pay like $20 a gallon. So. Exaggeration. But- and you'll have to tip. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, you got to make a tip or what? You know what? We OK, we got off on a little bit of a tangent. I know. Freedom. It's uh, a free. You should be free to pump your own gas and you should be capable of pumping your own gas. America. Yeah, I say just come on. I think we sh- we do need more freedom. And I think everyone can agree. Like you said, man, regardless of where you sit, if you're a Democrat or a Republican, a liberal, conservative, you're whatever, wherever you are. I think most people agree with the fact that we should be freer in America, that there's um, a lack of real freedom in America. I think there's very few people here that want the government to tell them every damn thing. Yeah, but that's where the hypocrisy comes in. They're fine in their pet pet issues. Like, I don't want the government involved. But also, I think the government should be telling people what to teach in their schools or the government should be telling people how to marry or whatever. I, I, no, I, no. I think no. Get rid of the damn government. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I think there's very few things. I would struggle to really think about the things I really want the government to do. I'll give you an example. How many people in the last six weeks – who generally are like, go states' rights, independent state, federal government shouldn't be more powerful, all of a sudden we're like pro-national reciprocity, mm-hmm. right? Like how many, how many literally hundreds of thousands of people inside of the gun community probably had not, hadn't put those two things together. Mm-hmm. That they're calling for all these individual state rights because they think that they live in, you know, I don't know, Texas or Arizona and the federal government shouldn't be able to interfere, right? Like let's make, uh, Tennessee did that thing where, we're going to make uh, manufacturing of, of suppressors or selling of guns or whatever. We're going to make it all legal within our state boundaries. You can make a gun as long as it doesn't cross the state border. You don't need to worry about the federal law. Like that was the interpretation of what they did a couple years back. Everybody in the gun world was all for it, except now that it's something we might want. We don't care about states' rights. We want national reciprocity at the federal government level. Yeah. And I just, that kind of hypocrisy is very convenient, and that's why we as leaders need to be calling that out. Yeah. And I think we all do it. I, I think really one of the problems is, man, the you know what? People like yourself are and people even probably like me, we're just not willing to run for office. So the people who do run for office, they thrive off of this confusion that we have. Oh, for sure. They live off of this. As long as we're confused, we don't know what we want. They could flip, you know, and this is what I always tell people about parties, man. I think like the polit- the the two party political system in America is one of the problems to me because I think they're all bad. (laughs) You know, I think they're all bad, but no one, whenever I talk to people about it, I'm like, okay, so are you going to run for office? Everyone says no. Right. Yeah. I'd run for office. I've never, I've never anywhere long enough to like develop a, you know, I move around constantly. I I don't have any like rules saying I wouldn't run for office. I'm not ruling it out. I might run for office at some point when I get a little more settled in life, but the, the idea of get a little bit more. Uh, can, do you mind if I ask you this? Uh, what's that? How old are you? 45. 45. Oh, so about <laughs> around what age do you settle in? Do you think? I, don't know. <laughs> I, don't know. I, I would have said 45. Yeah, uh, I mean, I'm 45 also. I'm going to be 46 in a couple of months. As, as will I. Yeah. 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 So I'm just curious, you know, like when do you, when do I, like, because I don't know myself, like when do you actually settle at what age? <laughs> 
But if I, if it ever happens, right? Like if I actually, what I would say is put down some roots somewhere, or if I were to go back to a place where I've lived for a number of years, uh, and maybe that I have some community tie, because I think that's that's the important part of really establishing yourself in the political world is you've got to have some kind of local support because you know it's just it's just too easy, right? I show up somewhere like, oh, I'm running for office. Well, you've only lived here for six months. Hire, you know, this guy grew up here. Well, I'm an idiot, but he grew up there. Is going to get him a lot of votes mm-hmm. over carpetbagger or who, whatever term they use in that yeah. area. Right. Yeah. But that's not an excuse. It really is. My life's too busy. I'm too busy with my family and my business, but there, I, I wouldn't rule it out because of the way the system is. If anything, the way the system is, is what would make me want to be involved. And, and, and if people didn't want it, like I, I look at Rand Paul, right? I feel like Rand Paul was a great candidate. The people didn't, they weren't ready to break from that two party system in enough strength to support him. Now I was all for people voting for him so that possibly he would get a high enough percentage mm-hmm. to make that third party more legitimate going into future elections, you know? And, and I don't feel like enough people did that honestly, because they were scared of what would happen if, right? Mm-hmm. So instead of a long game of let's support the libertarian candidate, they took a very short game of let's not let Hillary win. Yeah. On our side, I think that's what happened. On you know our gun side, I think that's how that's how we always screw ourselves up. I think you know, and and I think one of the reasons for that is Americans in general, no matter uh, what side they're on. I'm not saying Americans aren't suffering, but I'm going to tell you guys, most Americans have it too damn good. Until things really have to get tough for people to really think about this seriously, you know. Yeah, it's the first world problems, right? My problem is all of a sudden I have to pump my own gas. Okay. Well, you got a good job, Oregon. Like, <laughs> yeah. Damn, it's tough out there. You got to, yeah. you know, that's what I think is going on with America, man. Because I think if people really suffered, it, I don't really think people are suffering. And because they're not really suffering, then they're not saying like, why the hell are we in this position? And then looking at it and realizing that it's both of these parties that are constantly creating the situation and confusing people that t- today they're over here with you. And then, and then the next thing you know, they flip and they're over here. But then these guys moved over here, you know, and everyone's trying to think, like, where should I be? You know, am I going to figure out where I'm at because of my skin color or because I believe in this thing or that thing? And it's just a bunch of crap. When, when stuff gets really, really tough for people, they start simplifying shit. Absolutely. They, they do. I think you're right. I think they, they start making they, well, they, they start making harder decisions. And it may not be a simple decision, but they start making those harder decisions because they, they recognize, OK, this isn't just me on the internet, like through a code name being, you know, expressing my opinion and being told I'm dumb. This is now feeding my family or getting a job or being able to afford a house. Mm-hmm. And right. Things haven't been bad for a long time in the U S I can't say that, you know, I've ever had a situation where I looked around and I'm like, Oh my gosh, my country is, is falling apart. Right. It's not, it's never been Venezuela. Right. It's never mm-hmm. been like, like invaded. Mm-hmm. It's never, you know, we had our we had our 2008 crisis. We had 9/11. You know, um, my first political memory is the Iran uh, hostage crisis. You know, we've had our our things in our lifetime, but we haven't we haven't suffered enough to to talk about changing things at a huge. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, okay. So you know what? I'm gonna try to because um, we usually what Lola always wants me to do when we start up these things is like get into some background and stuff like that. And so she's been giving me the signal that I didn't do any background because there might be some people out there, Rob, that never heard of Rob is, Pincus. Is it, what's the signal for background? Like, 
Oh no, it's a, it's she, yeah. She comes, she gives me notes. <laughs> she, there's a little board over there that she writes on. She comes and stands over there and looks at me like, "What the hell's going on with you?" It's I've gotten like ten signals so far because right. um, we went off. So I want to thank everyone that is watching us. I want to encourage all you guys that are watching us. You know, click the thumbs up. You know, do that. We appreciate it. Also, share this and let folks know that we're doing it. Our guest tonight is Rob Pincus. Rob, you know, can you give us a little bit of background on who you are? My understanding is that you were in law enforcement and you're a trainer. And I think now you're doing all of those things. And well, I don't know if you're in law enforcement, but you're developing guns as well on top of that. Yeah. So uh, my first, like in my world, what I was going to be doing in is relation in relation to guns was being some kind of an armed professional, right? Whether that was in the military or law enforcement, that's kind of what I grew up figuring I was going to do. Uh, my dad was a cop. Um, Went to a military. I went to a military college. Uh, I ended up getting my uh, commission in the Army Reserve uh, right at graduation, and as an officer, ended up uh, going almost immediately into the IRR. Did nothing with that. Uh, worked in a lot of executive protection, private security roles, and what's the IRR? Uh, inactive Ready Reserve. It's like okay. if Canada and Mexico both invade and and. Personnel command is in Kansas City. Like it, they're, they're they're just about going to get there by the time they get to my name. Like okay, we now we need you too. <laughs> okay, <laughs> <laughs> this was like the Clinton cutbacks uh, were all going on, and there were a lot of people getting early outs, and a lot of people that had even new commissions were being told, "We don't have a place for you." Uh, you know, will you take a transfer to this place where we need you? And I'm like, no, I don't want to go to North Dakota and be part of the finance corps. Mm-hmm. So, okay, well, we have to put you in the IRR. Okay, put me in the IRR. And uh, I was, I was, you know, like I said, I was very busy in the, in the uh, security world by then. And really what happened is I, I, realized, I realized early in life, I'm not really cut out for that bureaucracy. I'm not cut out for that public sector, uh, you know, put your time in and, and lay low until you're, you know, part of the system. And once you're part of the system, you'll get promoted and you get promoted enough to where you're influential. But then you're so embedded in the system that it's very hard to yeah. do do anything right yeah you have to have a lot of patience and uh you know the good old boy good old boy network has to be on your side for that one yeah yeah there's a lot of a lot of things and, it, and it's not to take away there are a lot of people who've accomplished great things in that system they just have a different personality type than i do right so i i know that for me the entrepreneurial the more independent side was was where i wanted to be uh, uh, sort of planting my own flag and saying okay i'm the leader over here kind of because i said so who likes what I'm saying, come on over, right? Mm-hmm. Not, not these people over here or these people over here said I could be the leader, right? Mm-hmm. That was that was sort of where I ended up. So by the mid-90s, I, ha- I had been uh, working as reserve law enforcement uh, officer, sheriff's deputy in central Tennessee and uh, ended up getting an opportunity to, and, and, and had, at a point in life where if I didn't try full-time law enforcement, I was going to get to a point where I was either too entrenched in my private sector bi- or my uh, private businesses or I was going to be too old to do it well anyway. So in my uh, late 20s, I decided, okay, let me give this a try. Moved to Northern Virginia, uh, joined a small city police department, um, did, did a lot of cool things. I, I had a lot of fun with it. Uh, did, did a lot of you know, SWAT team and community policing and weed and seed, you know, foot patrol. I really a lot of good fun stuff, a lot of good experience in a relatively short time. Got every school I could, all that kind of stuff. In the meantime, I had already started working in the gun industry. 97 was my first SHOT Show. I was writing for different magazines. I started teaching as an adjunct for different schools. And once again, I just found that I really liked the teaching 
I liked the private sector, independent entrepreneurial stuff a lot more than I did the, you know, two o'clock in the morning chasing bad guys was fine and great. And that's really what I wanted to be doing with that side of my life. But I didn't want to be in the lieutenant's office at 10 o'clock in the morning trying to explain why I said fuck in front of someone, you know, or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So after a pursuit and a guy ran and I had to tackle him and I said, fuck in front, somebody's front yard and they complained, you know, like, yeah, you know, I didn't like, real, really, how about that? How about we focus on that for a minute and let the fuck go? Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was, it was that kind of stuff. I just, just couldn't process enough mm-hmm. tolerance. Right. So again, discipline, tolerance, patience, whatever you want to call it. I didn't have it. So yeah, I, it takes it takes some really special people. That's the whole thing I think that's happening with law enforcement that people don't realize. And when you get good guys in there that are really built to do that and have the patience and all the other things that, you know, all the other matrix stuff that has to go together to make a good police officer, they just don't get paid well enough. You know, even though it's such an important thing, you just don't pay them well enough to retain the good guys. No, we don't. It takes a very, very much uh, dedication and discipline to stay in it. And, and I'm, I'm thankful for those who do. So 2000, agency and decided I was really going to go full time into this uh, private sector training and kind of plant my flag and, and set up a training business, continuing to adjunct, continuing some marketing work, continuing private security. And then, of course, 9-11 happens and the whole private sector training industry explodes, right? Just completely flips on its ear and it, it becomes something that it wasn't for the first two decades of, you know, gun sight and front sight and all that, where it was really as much of a hobby as anything else, right? It was mm-hmm. there were a few schools that that the same people would go to. A very small percentage of the private gun ownership community would go to the same schools over and over again. And you know, you talk to anybody, they'll tell you it was you know they'll they'll make up a number, but it was like all right, maybe there were fifty thousand students in the year two thousand that attended a class. Well, compare that to maybe there were eighty million gun owners that year, right? Mm-hmm. Not a big percentage. We have a much higher percentage of the community that trains now. A much higher percentage law enforcement that goes to private sector schools. The military started using a lot more private sector uh, training support in the mid 2000s. And I ended up running Bahala Training Center. Uh, we opened in, I uh, ended up out there in 2002. We opened in two, that spring of 2003. And we started doing a lot of training for the government, extreme close quarters uh, things, some uh, counter ambush things. That was that, where, where was that? Uh, Southwestern Colorado. That's when oh, I went. Colorado. Tell you right. Okay. So, uh, a facility that was very unique. Um, it, it was built um, for a very unique purpose. 9-11 shifted gears for the owners uh, away from recreational stuff to seeing if they could, you know, capitalize on the opportunity to make some money. Mm-hmm. They didn't have a training program. I ended up in the right place at the right time to establish that training program for them. We did some great things and it became a little bit of a laboratory for me to refine what it was my curriculum was, what my idea of a, of a training program was and to experiment a little bit. And we did that, and by the end of the 2000s, uh, the owners there had, had uh, decided to shut the training center down because their sister projects in south, southwestern Colorado were not uh, meeting with success. So ICE Training Company was born, and ICE Training Company is, is my company, and it's the umbrella company that really everything else operates. And, that, and that's still around today, right? That's what you and do, whatever training you do out of, out of that. Training.us, people can see the schedule there. Um, ICEstore.us is where they find the DVDs and the books. And again, a lot of the courses can be found through there. And that's the, the hub. You know, that's my company where all the training really works out of. And then we've got the combat focus shooting program, intuitive defensive shooting programs, our advanced pistol handling the Defensive Firearms Coaches Program that is now going to be a collaboration with the United States Concealed Carry Association. All of that is underneath that umbrella. 
And of course, ICE is, is, is more the Rob direct route to the training. And then personal defense network is the, uh, communications hub for, for not just me, but for a lot of great contributors and collaborators who put out information everywhere from the legal stuff to the gun stuff, to the unarmed stuff. All of that goes through personaldefensenetwork.com, which I'm the executive director of. And that project went online in 2010, but started as a DVD series in 2005. And we actually produced about 112 DVDs in that series over the course of uh, about a decade, maybe 12 years, um, really, really started tapering off our uh, DVDs in 2015 and focusing on the online distribution through PDN. But that okay. project I'm very proud of as well. Okay, just for anyone who wants to know, like if you're watching this later, you're watching it now, I just shared a link for the ICE training and uh, we're going to get that into the description as well for anyone that's interested. I know there's some questions like, um, you know, how can folks find your class in 2018 and the schedule and everything, right? That's where they would need to go. There they go. Yeah, that's the best place to start. Personaldefensenetwork.com also has a training tab. And our Personal Defense Network training tour is where about, I don't know, 50, 60% of my live training gets done every year during the tour between March and uh, the end of July. And those that calendar will be up and running uh, probably by the end of the month. We usually put those courses out around uh, January, February 1st. And then the tour starts the last week in March and there'll be okay. 12 instructors on the tour with me this year. Okay. And that's going around the country. That goes, yeah, I start in Florida at my home range and St. Augustine. Okay. And I end at Mike Hughes's place, uh, the CERT, uh, Mike, Mike Hughes, if you're familiar with the CERT pistols, uh, next level training, I end up at their, their home range. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah. Let's see that again. Uh, right up uh, on the Canadian border. Uh, is this a, and this is a training pistol. Yeah, this is the CERT pistol. A lot of people are familiar with the... Uh, the oh, okay, yes, yes, I have. Okay. This is just the mini one. I think it's one of the coolest things that, that's happened in the training side is that CERT's, uh, next level training CERT pistols now support the subcompact guns, right? Yeah. So training guns are only full-size guns, and obviously I, mean, I carry an XDS, right? This is a lot more like an XDS. Yeah, you want to train with something like what you carry, what you actually carry, dry I, fire I, stuff. I'm finally getting this to market this year, but they... They host the last class every year of the tour traditionally, and it's about 30 stops from uh, between Florida and uh, Washington State. Okay, and I encourage you guys, like, stay tuned here because I guarantee you that Rob has gun porn. We call it Gorn here. Right? Oh, yeah. yeah. We got gun porn that's coming up. And um, you said that your home range is in St. Augustine. I know you were telling me something about St. Augustine. Um so you are going to be doing a class there again, right? Because I missed the last yeah, one. My first classes of the year are actually next weekend in uh, – technically, I'm doing an instructor development class next week, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday at my home range in St. Augustine, Ancient City Range. It's kind of a special instructor class for USCCA leadership as part of this collaboration that we're launching uh, in April. So it's it's technically an open class, but almost everybody involved is involved with the USCCA instructor program and development already. So a bunch of people are coming down from Wisconsin, from their headquarters to uh, join us down there. That's going to be a lot of fun and very, very productive in terms of this last couple of milestones we have to get that program launched. And then I'm teaching in Tampa uh, at a new range, one place I've never taught before. So I'll be in Tampa on the 12th, 13th, and 14th. And then I really don't teach again until March. Maybe there's one or two classes, but this is definitely the slow season on, on classes. So I'll launch the tour in St. Augustine with a week worth of classes and then uh, start heading north uh, all the way up to New Hampshire and then cut back through the Midwest 
uh, all the way across the Rockies out to California and then head up the West Coast through Oregon and into Washington to end the tour. Wow. Okay. Very cool. So just, you know, um, and the best, what was the site that you said was best to keep track of that? ICETraining.us. Okay. Yeah. I did put up a link to that. Okay. So there's a link up for anyone that's interested in that now or later or whatever, there's a link up with that. Um, And then, you know, so when did you get into the, to actually doing guns? Because I know now you're developing guns, right? Yeah. So we started, um, let me see, I got a little, I got a locked case here. I don't know, I have no idea why it got locked, but it was, uh, I thought it was unlocked. probably just have it. I closed it up and spun the tumbler. But I've got a uh, PD-10 right here. This is the first gun from Avidity Arms. And it is a, this one's kind of, this one's very, very Gorn-ish because it's Cryptek hyphen. Oh, wow. Um, nice, nice. Weekend. And this is this a, is nothing like what I saw when I saw you in Atlanta. No, no, we had. I think I had just a regular old uh, black and gray one there, and I've kind of got it. The configuration that I have this in right now, the one that I've got, is actually not even a PD10. This very few people have seen. This is a PD8. So this okay. is a top grip, um, eight shot version. A lot of people have asked how big is the grip. Well, you can see I've got you know probably a medium large, not, not, you know, super large hands, but definitely not small. And I can get a full, full grab on that. Um, hold it something like an, an FN, uh, if you're familiar with the FN S nine C, um, you can mm-hmm. see I can't really get a, uh, pinky grip on there, but this one I can, and that's eight rounds plus one. Now, uh, okay. So yeah, I've heard of the PD 10. I was not aware that you were going PD eight. Have you finished developing the PD 10? Is that out yet? Is it coming out soon? What's going on? We're finished with develop. We're kind of in that limbo stage of there's nothing really else for me to do because all the design work is done. All the tweaking work is done. All the, uh, now the things that has to happen are like, they're more like bean counter operations where somebody has to decide if the, uh, slide stop is going to come from vendor a or vendor b or which material we're going to use for some piece inside there and so it's much more of an engineering nickels and dimes production thing we've got you know six can you hold that up a little bit higher just for the folks who haven't seen it at all this is the full-size pd10 that was i showed you guys the uh that chopped version there that's the eight right this is the that that is i think i did technically show that uh on one other podcast but not very many people have seen that one this is the PD-10. This is what the first gun that's going to be coming out. It's a 10-round uh, plus one, 11-round single-stack gun, very thin, designed around the 9-millimeter cartridge. It's not going to be a 40. It's not going to be a 45. Uh, it's, designed, it's a 4-inch barrel, um, specifically designed to fit as many hands as possible on the grip, to be comfortable and ergonomic for as many people as possible, and still comfortable to carry full-size grip uh, shootability. You know, and, and that's, that's So I talk about balancing decades have asked for essentially like a single stack M&P or a single stack block 19 type gun. And that's what this uh, sort of tries to be, tries to fill that gap uh, in the, in the market. So we've right. been talking about it for a long time and a lot of people, you know, have said, well, it's never going to come out. It's going to come out, but it's not going to come out until we can do it right. And right now we're really in the phase of making sure that not only can we bring it out properly, but we can bring it out at the right price. So showing up in the box with three magazines with proper sites that you aren't going to want to run out and replace right away for uh, a 499 MSRP 
is uh, the goal. And that's really 499. So, and then when it, okay, so let's kind of start from like the, from the bottom here and build out. Cause I'm sure people have a bunch of questions while we have on, while you, we have you on here. Now you're doing it with Avidity Arms, right? Are you an owner? You have a partnership with Avidity Arms? Partnership with Avidity is, is uh, a brand new company that, that I started with some partners. Um, Eagle Imports is our uh, parent company. And Eagle has been a company that's been around for about 30 years importing guns. The one, the one that most people know is Bursa. Um, they've imported a lot of different brands of guns from a lot of different places around the world. And the idea they had was they wanted to potentially diversify into distributing some American-made guns. And when they looked into trying to wedge into that market, it, was, it really wasn't going to help them that much. Uh, what made sense was, well, wait, if we're really going to be serious about this, and this conversation first started uh, in about five years ago, was maybe we should look at developing our own guns and coming up with our own brand of guns. And whether it was Eagle Defense or Eagle Firearms or whatever, in those conversations, the idea of coming up with a, a sister company or a subsidiary. Uh, and then, like I said, a lot of my friends at Eagle uh, knew that I'd be interested in designing a gun. And they came to me about, you know, you want this role as vice president of design and really be in charge of either designing a gun from scratch or supervising the development of guns that might be designed by other people. And that's where we started. And the PD-10 is our first uh, first gun. PD-8. And, it's, and it's from scratch. It's not based on any other handgun that exists out well, there. You know, it's like, you know, you see the memes, every gun since, you know, 1906 or 1897 has been de- designed, you know, with some variation of the Browning uh, 1911, right? The 1911 design. So to that extent, this this owes a lot of lineage to a lot of other guns. The trigger mechanism is very much Glock-like, uh, for example. But the pieces, it's this piece, that piece, the other thing. One, a friend of mine who also is a gun designer said that we really haven't had true innovation in a long time in, in handguns. We've seen evolution and tweaking and improvement, but we haven't really seen true innovation in, in any super significant way. And, and I, would, I would agree with that. So there's nothing in here that's like, no one's ever done this before in any way close to this, but this combination of features, combination of, combination of dimensions is uh, unique on the market right now, though certainly there are things that are close. Uh, but I feel like we're, we're with the PD-10, we're definitely hitting a niche of full-size, single-stack, modern striker-fired gun that doesn't exist. Uh, the trigger on this, I think, is uh, going to feel different to a lot of people who are used to Glock or M&P or X triggers, the modern striker-fired guns because of the way the first shot um, is under a lot more pressure from the very first you start pulling a trigger. And when I say more pressure, I don't mean heavier. I mean a longer duration of resistance. So you don't have this almost two-stage trigger effect where there's nothing and there's a wall and there's everything. This is much more a, here's what the trigger feels like, fire the shot, and then a short, crisp reset for the follow-up shots. Okay. I would call it like a DASA-esque, but the first trigger pull is going to be about four and a, four and a half pounds of an inch and then the rest of the trigger pulls will be about four and a half pounds and only take about a third of an inch quarter of an inch to a third of an inch to fire so it's it's pretty unique trigger but it's not unique technology or engineering it's just the way we've set the trigger up inside the gun okay cool now so there's a couple things i want to ask you about that um i know that i did handle one of these i didn't get a chance to shoot it i think when you brought it to atlanta you were letting people shoot it oh yeah a bunch of people got to shoot it yeah i'm sorry um, yeah, I just got caught up in a bunch of stuff, man, to be honest with you. But I did like the weight of it and all that kind of stuff. So and I see we've got some questions here, specifically our friend Patrick from the firearm rack. I don't know if you if you know Patrick Roberts. 
formerly yeah formerly of the firearm blog you know and oh, now okay. he's, he's doing his own thing yeah so he, he oh, okay. yes, yes 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 i know the name now i got it yes yeah you should if if you've ever met patrick you will never forget him so there you go <laughs> um so the thing is he wants to know like durability and stuff like that he wants to know you know um for, so for example can he torture test this you know he's famously um done some things with the p320 recently the um honor guard the honor defense honor guard um you know not being drop safe and all that kind of stuff have you guys done that kind of testing what kind of durability should we yeah, look forward to here actually so now what we're doing is so we know the design meets our specifications we we did a whole bunch of testing which some people got to see some video they can see it at my youtube channel sort of a, a goofy uh excerpt reel of our long long couple of days of testing we did yeah i saw that you were doing rolls and you, yeah, i think yeah, you eventually yeah. just got really bored of just pulling the trigger <laughs> what can we do now to make this less boring and uh that was fun but we actually shot guns to failure in a couple of different ways over that period. And now we will, we will do that again with this first production batch. And, but as far as things like the drop safeties and the inertial safeties, testing all that stuff, again, you know, I, I think that guns like the 320 and some of the aftermarket triggers that certainly aren't drop safe, they, they open themselves up to this, this failure. Um, in, in a way that I would never consider doing. The very first thing I said about the 320, and it's it's well documented, was I have no idea why it doesn't have a, a tab safety or a blade safety, whatever we're calling it these days. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think Mesh likes to call it the dingus or something. <laughs> yeah, but, it, but especially yeah. for as as short a trigger travel as it had. You know, it just I felt like for a defensive gun, it was trying too hard to be a, a target shooting gun of person who already likes SIG and is already a big SIG fan, they're exactly the type of people that, that I see come through classes who are going to love a trigger like what the 320 came with without really having thought through whether or not it's a great defensive trigger. Now, I never thought it was incredibly dangerous, but I'll give you an example. There was a, a situation that happened, um, I don't know, two years ago, two, two plus years ago, where a, an instructor... Uh, was in a parking lot with a bunch of students and to make a point, took a gun from a student, put it on the ground and yeah. stepped on it to say, it's just a tool, man. Right. Well, and then it went off. Mm-hmm. Well, that gun happened to be a 320. And my, my understanding of that situation is that was a habit that, that that guy and or some people in that school had sort of done that demo many times. My guess is he had done that demo many times with Glocks or MPs or XDs and other double action, single action type guns that never had an issue, but wasn't familiar with just how short and crisp, you know, my guess is if you'd have told that guy, Hey, here's a 1911, I'm going to take the safety off, go ahead and do that demo. That dude would have been like, no way, man. Yeah. Was that a 320? I always thought it was a Glock. Um, no. I don't know. There might be several situations. Now the one, one Sacramento that I'm thinking of was, it was a 320. Mm-hmm. And as I heard that it kind of, I, and not to excuse that behavior or that habit, but to say, Oh, well, that kind of makes more sense to me now that the way I heard the story is actually all that happened. That the guy just you know stepped on the gun and grounded into the, the dirt a little bit because that trigger was so short and crisp. So mm-hmm. they, they 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 brought themselves to the table with a gun that was right on the edge of anybody's being being accepting it, right? And I think if it wasn't a big company like Sig, they would have had a lot more people call them out and say that trigger is just just too short and too crisp for a defensive gun, especially without a manual safety or a tab or blade safety or a dingus. 
And, and here we are full circle, right? It took somebody really getting into figuring out how to make it fail to prove that it could fail in a way that required an upgrade. Yeah. And that's the last thing I want to do with my gun is, is, you know, go, go out and go out with something that's going to compromise what I think is, is good to sell more guns. In other words, I think a, a longer trigger travel is better for that first shot. So to send out a gun that has a really short crisp trigger and try to confuse the market with, well, I know it's a defensive gun, but look at the tight groups you can shoot at, at 25 yards is going to, that would compromise my integrity and expose the gun to potential failures. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that if you think about this, people should realize that if you put your name on a gun, you know, and you put it out there, you cannot, once a gun goes out into the universe, in other words, it's sold in stores, it's in the wild now, you have no control over what someone does in a YouTube video. So people aren't going to, you know, you're putting your name on it, but that doesn't mean that people are going to go, hey, you know, Rob made this gun. I'm not going to tear it apart. Actually, it's going to be the opposite of that. Yeah, Patrick is already planning that. By the way, uh, he says that he, he met you in an elevator in Atlanta and it was weird because you had a pillowcase in your hand. Yeah, no, that's pretty much that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. It was, it was, <laughs> let's not talk about what was my other hand, Patrick. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Were you up to something nefarious? Who knows? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think we, I think you froze there for a second. What did you say? I did. I was just saying, let's not talk about what was in my other hand. But yeah. The, uh, <laughs> I think what's important to realize is you said something there about, you know, you put your name on a gun, you put it out there. I've already had to come to terms with the idea that the market's going to find something that we could have done better. Right. I've already come to terms with the fact that, that somebody's going to do something dumb with this gun and hurt themselves. Somebody's going to come to the, the table with having done something so negligent and reckless that they hurt another innocent person with their own stupidity with my gun. A bad guy might get their hands on one of my guns and kill a cop with one of my guns. You know, and I have to believe that what I'm doing is bringing something to the, the universe that is going to be used for much more good and positive and that much more good and positive is going to come from this than those negative spikes. You know, um, there's a, a friend of mine in the training industry that just found out that a guy who, who killed a cop had attended a few of his classes last year. Mm -hmm. And he's dealing with that. Like the guy, yeah. the guy, the guy was a vet, the guy, you know, had legally bought the guns. There was nothing this guy could have done about it, but he had, he dealing with that. If you're in the training industry and you already thought about that. Shame on you. Yeah show up as a piece of evidence in a murder trial where the prosecutor alleged that my video was one that the killer used to learn how to kill. That, yeah, um, wow. So, so yeah. we have to deal with these things. We have to be prepared to deal with them and to not talk about them uh, is, is, is naive. Yeah. Because and, hopefully, and, and, right. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was gonna say, maybe there's somebody out there right now who wanted to hang up their shingle and become a firearms instructor this year that never thought about that. Think about it before you get into this business. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, um, I think the rule is, is that we are all all responsible for our own honor. So, you know, when you put a thing out into the universe, um, no matter what it is, if it's a gun or anything else, you build a car, you know, you have some kind of training or whatever it is, you put it out into the universe, other human beings take it and do things with it. What you're ultimately responsible for is for your reason and intent and what you did when you put it out into the universe, not what that person does, you know? Intent is so important, and it kind of goes back to what we were talking about freedom and laws and punishment. Um, even like when you have, we had a big conversation, one of those, you know, get together, have a couple of drinks, and talk about 
the universe and meaning and philosophy. One of the conversations I was involved in this past week was about offending people, you know, and, and it all being about intent. If you said something willfully to hurt somebody, you know, sorry, but uh, you, you've done something wrong. If you said something accidentally and it offended somebody and you feel bad, now I empathize with you and don't make that mistake again. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. But, but there has to be an education and there has to be an understanding from both sides. If someone's been offended, well, what, what was, what was the intent? And if there wasn't intent, have you educated that person to let them know that that's not appropriate or that you don't appreciate it and then let them make an educated decision about whether they want to do it again? Absolutely. Yeah. Now let's, let's stick to the, to the, uh, to the gun a little bit. I know we've got some questions about um, magazines and I know when I was watching your stuff with the testing, you did have some issues with the magazines. Have you guys cleared that up? And then also, also what's going on with the magazines? Can we switch this, these between the guns? Yeah. So this is a uh, Chip McCormick, uh, 10 round 1911 magazine. That has been the magazine that has been, and we're ending with that one. That is the, the, that work the best with the gun and you know no wonder it's the best 10 round 1911 magazine out there in general that our gun works best with now when it comes to the the you can actually see this uh fabricated uh reduced magazine this magazine is cut down to fit into that shorter gun now i can take one of these longer magazines and put it in there and it locks in and it would feed and it probably would drop free and do all the stuff we want it to do. But here's the trick with a straight walled magazine. If it doesn't have a spacer or a block of some kind, you might've seen some of the 10 round 1911 magazines that have a little tab that comes out right there mm -hmm. to stop where the normal ones do. This can come up and hit that extractor and actually break the extractor or you can have a, have it go in too far and get jammed in there. So theoretically, yeah, you could use the larger magazines in the smaller gun, but we're going to have to come up with a, with one of those sleeves or we're going to have to come up with a stop. We're going to have to come up with a way to make sure you can do that without damaging your gun. Yeah. Cause when you do that, like slap the back of the magazine thing. Yeah. You might mess the yourself shield. up. The, uh, the, the Smith and Wesson shield is one that, that you used to take the sleeves off those extended magazines and slam it in there. You're going to break that, that ejector. Um, the, the Smith and Wesson, uh, XDS doesn't really suffer from that. The way the magazine's built, the way the magazine well is built, you really have to be King Konging that thing in there to damage the ejector. Well, this gun happens to be more like the shield. If we don't do something to put a spacer in there, you can't put the full size mags in the smaller gun. Okay. And, and the gun, and now, the, as far so as just so I can get this straight here, the gun is designed around a 1911 magazine. 10 round, uh, nine millimeter, 1911 magazine. Now what we found is this, just about any of the nine rounders will work. You can go buy nine rounders, the cheapest ones you can find at Brown L's and you're probably not going to have any trouble with a nine round capacity magazine in the PD 10. But if you want the 10 round capacity that the guns intended to have 10 plus one, the full 11 rounds, Chip McCormick magazines are the one or the ones that we're going to be shipping with the gun. Those are the only brands that we're going to be recommending. So what, what comes with the gun and or Chip McCormick magazine, 10 rounders are the only two 10 rounders that were, were, you know, if you call us and say, I'm using Wilson 10 rounders and it's not working, we're going to say, yeah, we know. That's why it's in the role to use these other ones. Okay. And so are you guys going to do anything polymer? No, these will be metal magazines. So, so I'm, you know, especially in the single stacks, the, the polymer on polymer, there just isn't a lot of room in there to 
very easy to kind of screw up your drop freeness. Um, so I like a metal magazine in a polymer gun or a metal magazine in a metal mag, uh, metal uh, gun to, to ensure the drop freeness. Okay. Okay, cool. And then I think we've got some questions about where can people see these guns, what shows. So for example, SHOT Show's coming up. Yep, you guys yep. can have it at SHOT Show. In fact, right now there's one going on out in Vegas, the Big West. Something. There's a show right now at the Mirage, I think. Uh, and there's some, there's some distributor show going on out in Vegas where the, we have one of the guns there. Um, there'll be several distributor shows going on. You can see the gun listed with several distributors. I think RSR, Lipsy's. Uh, I'm not sure if Davidson's has it up yet, but there there are several gun distributors. If you're in the retail side of the industry that already have the gun listed, they've already placed orders with us. Um, and of course we'll be at shot. So yeah, we'll be at the Eagle imports booth on the main floor at uh, shot show. And if you watch my social media, you'll certainly see what that booth number is. And avidityarms.com, of course is a great place to go look at the specs and uh, kind of see what, what you uh, can expect when this gun hits the market. Okay. Very soon. Cool. And it's definitely in the streets when, Rob, tell us now so that we can hold you forever to that date. When it's ready. Okay, good answer. <laughs> yeah. Um, I know I, I told some folks that you were coming on and they're like, yeah, when is the PD-10 coming out? That's what I want to know. That's my question. So, I mean, honestly, Rob says he's working on it. You know, I think that that's a good thing to do. Work on it, get it out there. I don't think anything's going to be perfect though. So hopefully once it goes out, you guys still keep working on it. Got to be safe. It's got to be reliable and there'll be tweaks. You know, um, like I said, we shot a couple guns to failure. Here's the good news. One of the failures that we had um, was had already been identified from the engineering side and it was already a design change, but we were shooting a slide that was from a, a, one of the early product runs and, and the money was on, okay, it's probably going to fail here. And it did. So that's great. Like if the engineers predict when the guns are going to fail and they're right, that's a good thing, right? We know all these guns are going to fail. The cars are going to fail. The refrigerator is going to fail. If it surprises us or it happens really early, we have a problem. There was another failure on the frame side that was unexpected at the point we got it. It actually happened. It occurred after the slide break. It happened on the same gun and probably the slide crack. Uh, contributed to it showing up earlier than it would have anyway. And it helped us identify a place where we could very easily without much fuss, uh, strengthen the gun okay. in a way that may or may not have been necessary, but it actually made the gun stronger. So that's one of the things that comes out of this testing is, uh, well, we can put a radius in there instead of that straight edge. And it makes that area stronger for like no effect really on our side. Yeah. Okay. Very good. And in case, um, you know, this would be my final thing, unless anyone else out there has any questions on it. What are you doing for uh, holsters? Uh, we've got a bunch of different holsters that are already uh, being made for it. Uh, there have been made for it, I should say. So we've got some from uh, Filster uh, up in Philadelphia. Uh, Crossbreed's made one for it. Uh, Castle Bravo has made a couple for it. And lots and lots of people have expressed an interest in it. Um, I had a great conversation right before Christmas with uh, Scott Evans over at G-Code, who I've known forever, uh, about getting INCOG support for it, as well as maybe some other things that are coming up from his side. Um, we know that it, it, it accepts the attachment for the Omnivore from Blackhawk. It will probably fit the... Um, uh, you, you broke up there for a second. Oh, Sorry. Um, it, it, we know it fits in the Omnivore uh, with the attachment from Blackhawk. We believe it's also going to fit in the smaller size, uh, the one that's made for the shield. Uh, as far as the Safari Land, we think it's going to fit in there. And if not, 
it will we'll figure they'll tweak it. We'll tweak. There'll, there'll be plenty of support from a lot of major players. And honestly, I'm kind of excited about some of the smaller guys like Castle Bravo, um, Spencer Keepers, Philster. Those guys are wanting to support the holster as well. It, nothing worse than a gun that is released on the market as supposedly as a defensive gun, but has no holster support. So yeah. we, we, we probably even jumped the gun a little bit early uh, to get some of those prototypes done, but there will be holster support uh, for appendix carry inside the waistband traditional and outside the waistband when we launch. Yeah, absolutely. And so like, what if some smaller companies want to get in touch with you in terms of doing holsters and things like that for them? Yeah, to me directly uh, through social media or just hit the info at avididyarms.com, hit the, the contact us link through the website or through any of the social media for Avidity Arms. And we'll definitely add you guys to the list where there's no proprietary exclusive, like we want anybody and everybody to get involved. Okay. Very cool. Uh, Babyface P from my channel wants to know what colors you're going to have for the frames. Gray. So the, uh, the, the guns will, will first be uh, in gray. It'll be a gray and black configuration like that. That'll be the first uh, production run of 6,000. Probably all black will be the second thing that we do. And, uh, like I said, we're working with different people. We've got the, the Cryptek gun. Um, I've got two super cool yeah, guns. Can you hold up the Cryptek one again? Let's take a good look at that. Get this kind of back here. Joint, yeah. joint, for, joint Force Enterprises. Up a little bit higher. Up a little bit. Up. Okay, and then there you go. Okay, so there's the Cryptek. This gorgeous job. Is that going to gonna, gonna have a premium on it? The yeah, price like was? to be offering these from the factory we just, we've done some things with with collaborators like savage Cerakote up in new jersey because i'm from new jersey because eagles based in new jersey avidity arms um, is coming out of new jersey and savage Cerakote, he's one of our jersey guys so he's working on a special gun that we're going to be debuting at shot show um, he's actually the first one doing a, a custom Cerakote. Uh, we've also got blown deadline a lot of people on the instagram know know what they do with guns they're working on a custom project for us um, we're also going to show that off probably right around shot shows. So there's a bunch of guns that are being done just kind of show off the potential. You know, a lot of the aftermarket support we expect for this gun. You know, we're doing some collaborations with holster companies, collaborations with uh, Viridian laser light stuff. Um, of course, I've got my Ameriglow sights on the gun. The uh, the claw emergency manipulation site is the site that. Yeah. Is and just and there's some folks asking just this is called the PD10. So Peter David 10, right? PD10. Okay. From arms A V I D I T Y. There you go. So, so for anyone who's interested in that, I mean, you know, there's some folks out there that may not have heard of it. Yeah, there you go, right there. Avidity Arms. It's spelled out on the on the bottom of Rob's um, his thing right here on the bottom. If you look at that. So, and then you you guys are developing some other stuff. When I saw you out in Atlanta, you had the was it the Brutus? What was that? What did I have? What was that thing? You had this like really, I oh. had no clue. You put it in my hands and I was like, oh, this yeah, is a really cool gun. It's probably expensive. I took was a picture it? of it and then just totally forgot until I saw it somewhere. And it was like, I don't know, $10,000 or something. Uh, $7,500 is the MSRP on the FK Bruneau. It's an amazing pistol. It's just, it's like a work of art. And it's, it's the capability. It's got an incredible capability as far as the round, you know, develop the, the 7.5 FK round was developed in conjunction with that pistol specifically for it um people can if you want to just like hit the search engine and put in you know rob pinkus fk space b-r-n-o it's a Brno, a city in the czech republic 
and you'll be able to see a great video they put together um, from a, a visit I did to their factory and sort of to learn about the pistol last February. And they've just started bringing them into the U.S. They're not available for retail sale yet, but some test guns are in. The ATX approved them. Um, I expect the guns to be selling probably early February. Uh, but they're they're just they're works of art, man. They're just beautiful pieces. Okay, awesome. And you said you you don't have one there now, right? I don't have one sitting right here right now. Oh, okay. What other guns do you have? Just curiosity. Uh, well, let's see. I've got well, I've got my my XDS. I've got my carry gun. Uh, so I've got that sitting here. I've got. Um, what else did we see? We saw someone wanted me to ask you about Springfield Armory. How what do you feel about Springfield Armory? All the stuff that happened in uh, Illinois. It, that's a lot. Um, so here's the here's the summary. They hired someone along with Rock River Arms. They they hired someone to represent their interests. That person made a bad decision. In, under some pressure, political pressure from the leadership of the opposition at the last minute to change a, a position officially from the lobbying organization that was backed by Springfield and Rock River Arms. They pressured him to change a position from opposing something to no opinion, not to go all the way to showing support from it, but just to go from opposing it to neutral. And the idea was, let us get, it's a political wrangling thing, right? Let us get this out of committee We'll support you on some other things later. You know the governor's never going to sign this. It's never going to be made law. But let us get it out of committee to make sure Bill's happy, and then Bill will support you on the next one, right? It was kind of one of those deals. It was a bad decision. It obviously blew up in his face. He lost his job. Um, it caused a lot of embarrassment for Rock River Arms and for Springfield Armory. And unfortunately, as people do, they stopped listening after the first report, right? The first report, Springfield sells out the gun owners in Illinois. Yeah, we were very upset about this. Yeah. Me and included, me included. If you read the first report, you didn't sort of look into it any deeper. Of course, now, I'm my first call was, hey, my logo's on the side of your, you know, your logo's on the side of my truck. You're sponsoring my tour. I got to know what happened here. Because I'm not going to, I'm not, I'll, I'll write you a check. You know, it's, it's not that much money. Like I'll, I'll send it back to you. If you guys really were undermining the gun owners of Illinois and, and FFOs, it doesn't make a lot of sense on the surface, right? Like what do they really have to gain? If you, if that, that was the argument that was made, right? That support, supposedly they were going to be exempt from some state level restrictions inside of Illinois. When, when you look at the way they sell guns and how they sell guns all around the U S and how they operate all around the world, the number of guns they sell in Illinois and the way they operate in Illinois, like getting exempted from this thing that was never actually going to become a law anyway, nobody would have made that deal. Nobody would have thought that was smart politics in the Springfield building. Unfortunately, this lobbyist, you know, I think somewhere along the way, this happens to this happens to a lot of companies out there. Unfortunately, you know, I wanted to get into the conversation with you about the industry, not just like what we got guns we think are, are coming, but the way the industry looks at things. And I think lots of times in the industry, people, they, you know, they get disconnected. Companies get disconnected from what's going on. Um, yeah. and, you know, I'm not trying to give any excuses. I think that is the one thing you should never do is get disconnected from the people that you really, truly serve. Well, what, I don't think the company did. I think, like I said, they hired somebody and trusted somebody in a, in a very, very specific role that generally gets no publicity whatsoever. And quite frankly, the only reason the story came out was the guy that used to have that job that got fired, he sort of ratted that guy out to 
gun industry social media to make a big deal about it because I, honestly, I think there was a little bit of a personal agenda there and that's unfortunate, but that's the backstory. Like you want to know the back okay. backroom politics is some, that stuff never sees the light of day. Nobody ever would have known or noticed and it never would have had any functional practical uh, ramification for Springfield, for Rock River Arms, for me, for you, for anybody, because that bill was never going to make it to law. And somebody outed it and it got blown up. And this guy was, he, he was the, our guy, the guy that was working for, for Springfield, right? The guy who thought he was doing something to help Springfield. He made a bad decision. He just be, he calculated wrong. He tried to be smarter maybe than he was in that moment and made a bad deal. And that deal blew up in his face and then blew up in Rock River Arms face and blew up in Springfield's face. And to some extent, I still, if I post a picture of one of my, my Springfield guns, I'll get somebody on social media. Yeah. Oh, trust me, right now you're getting some hate. Right now in the chat, you're getting a little bit of hate. So here's the question I want to ask you, because, you know, listen, first of all, I appreciate you coming on. You know, um, I've always seen you running around you like one of those guys in the suit. And I've always thought like, hey, this is like one of those shiny guys in the suit that's just running around. But then I realized the other day when we were in Atlanta that that's really not you. You're a really cool, open guy willing to have uh, conversations with people. So we're having it here. And, you know, it's, this is not something I want to dwell on. But do you think that those of us that are mad about it and got upset, do you think that we should forgive and, you know, do you think we should just blankly forgive or there should be some kind of like, you know, meeting of the minds or where, you know, like a real conversation here so that we can get past it? I totally understand people who are mad and frustrated with the way that story broke and the way it was presented. I think if it I think that. In OK, you, you froze up there for a second. I'm oh, sorry. I think I think I understand why people are mad. I understand why people are upset. I think the hyperbole and the rhetoric surrounding the way the story initially broke because mm -hmm. it could have been written a lot of ways. And the way it was written was very inflammatory and very non uh, benefit of the doubt or not at all uh, compassionate or empathetic to maybe Springfield's position or rock river arms for that matter, but especially Springfield for some reason. So I think that if there were an understanding, if there were a better understanding of the circumstances that led to that original story being written, I think people would forgive Springfield and say, okay, we get it. Shame on you for, for being, you know, absentee owner of that lobbying group and shame on you for hiring a guy that made a bad decision. But you know what? You fired him. You know what? You explained yourself. You know what? You, you, you put a whole bunch of money out there to make sure that that bill didn't go anywhere, even though it probably wasn't going anywhere anyway. You did a lot of mea culpa. You pretty much shut down your social media for a month trying to figure out how to get people to understand that this this was a mistake. It was poor judgment. But it wasn't even Springfield's poor judgment except in hiring a guy who then made a bad decision. It's just it's very hard. It'd be like 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 if I went out and did something really, really dumb with the Springfield logo on my truck, right? If I if I pulled up to a gun buyback and said, you know what, I decided I don't I don't really like this color cryptic anymore. So here Illinois gun buyback. Let me take a hundred dollar gift certificate to Walmart and give you this gun. Right. <laughs> like somebody took a video of that. That would be incredibly dumb on my part. And the fact that I did it in a truck, the tour truck that has CMMG's logo and Springfield's logo and all the logos on it would be especially dumber. And then Springfield might get some fallout from that. And they would have to say, yeah, we trusted Rob to be a good steward of our brand and representative of our brand. We never thought he would do something like that. Here, look at Rob's track record. Look at our track record. 
we can't believe that happened. We have cut ties with Rob. We are no longer sponsoring his tour. And we hope that he thinks about what he did and, and gets better at life because that was not good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, listen, you know what? I mean, you know, um, I, I thought it was probably, you know, it would be fair to ask you that question. I think what will be interesting to me, I don't know if it would be interesting to my audience. I think it's a good idea. If we can get someone from Springfield to come on and have this conversation, you know, maybe you can come back on. Also, we can have some people who maybe feel uh, differently about it because I think sometimes you can work out these things by actually just talking to people. Yeah. Just an understanding. I would never, I don't like this guy, Keller, I think his name was, I don't, I understand what he did. I don't agree with what he did. I also understand what Springfield did in hiring Keller and trusting him. And I do agree with that decision. I think they made an educated decision at that time because what Keller did in that moment, if I'm getting the name right, I think I am, was so out of character and so like left field that you couldn't have predicted it. Right. And, but as soon as he did that, it was, it was, it was a step over the line that was so far over the line that you're out. Like you don't even yeah. The only thing like what I think about this is I, I, I wish that when some of these things happen, that instead of just going to the PR people and, and uh, having these conversations with the with the Second Amendment folks out there through PR people like just, you know, I, they don't have to do it through me. There's lots of other guys that would probably be better than me. But just come on, talk to the people, give the people a chance to vent their frustration and explain things to them. And then that's the way we can all get over this and move forward. Because I think ultimately we're kind of like surrounded by people who are against the second amendment. And we do have to figure out a way to try somewhat, maybe not all of us could get along and and move forward together, but some of us have to. I think you're right. I think that, if you go back and watch that video, I'm putting my you know, Springfield back on as we're talking. If you go back and watch the video that they did release, and it, it took them a while to get it released, what you're going to see embedded in that is a very, very real conversation, very, very real statements, heartfelt statements from Danny Reese. Uh, he was crushed by this. His family was was crushed by this in, in ways that I think it's hard for people who just look at Springfield as this big entity, right? Don't even understand the personal drama and, and trauma that was created by that incident. And yeah. still kind of- And then a whole town, a whole town that's employed by this company and believes in it and that people are mad at, and maybe even some of the people inside of the company are mad about it. Absolutely, because they know they don't know for sure what, the, what machinations are going on and they're reading all the stuff on the internet. What you'll see is a very genuine- statements and very genuine positions and articulations. Now, here's the problem. And I, and I said this the day it came out, I said, it's great, except, you know, it's so overproduced, you know, it's so polished that it almost reads too much like a script. Now I know that's not what was happening. And I know that I know people that were in the room and I've talked to, including Denny, obviously who were the people that were in that room when that was being filmed, there was a lot of emotion in that room and that was not easy and, and it sits in the middle of this very polished, very highly produced piece that maybe takes away some of the genuine feeling that was in that. And I think that's what you're saying. That was certainly what I was saying was, hey, honestly, if Denny had just like, you know, selfied with yeah. Facebook Live and said all that. Just I, make it real. Like, dudes, you know what? I totally fucked up. <laughs> you know, that's, 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 that's like minutia, right? Like, yeah, I'll, you apologize. Well, you apologize and you explain. Yeah. And I think explanation was put out there pretty quick 
But that it was a firestorm, man. It was hard to, to get past that. And then once the firestorm got big enough, it was, okay, let's not talk for a minute. Let's regroup. And that what we got out of that was that, that very polished video. But the story is the same. And if you go back to the very first press release, you know, that was put out on it, that story was really consistent. And my understanding of that story has been incredibly consistent, you know, six, eight months later. And my position on it, you know, is, is pretty well established, whether it's been in video interviews or my social comments or whatever. Um, it's embarrassing. It's unfortunate. It was the, the way it should have been handled by a corporation that has a contractor. I think it was handled very well. Um, the judgment on hiring that guy, I understand why they did it at the time. Obviously, that was where the mistake was made. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's uh, let's first of all bounce back to something, and then we'll move on because I do want to talk about the industry and all that. We got Shot Show coming up. Uh, Patrick at the Firearm Rack. He, by the way, wants me to let you know and everyone else know that he agrees with you on this particular subject from his point of view is what uh, what he's seen. And you know, this is something that really divided everyone. Everyone's not of the same mind on this subject, folks. So let's just take everything with a grain of salt. Um, uh, Patrick, though, wants to know if the striker on the PD-10 is 100% or if it's uh, only cocked. That's his question. Hopefully I got that right. The, I think I understand the question. Um, based on that question, I think sometimes the nuance of a striker-fired gun is when you're pulling the trigger, is it cocking? Oh, pre I think he says pre-cocked. No, it's not pre-cocked. Yeah. Okay. Pre-cocked. Right. Yeah. So it is technically when you pull the trigger, you're, you're. I can't believe we're talking about cocked, pre-cocked. I mean, it happens. Please, yeah, YouTube, don't demonetize me because of this. These are genuine questions. They're real words. <laughs> yeah. These are real words in the dictionary. Third definition in yeah. Webster. Yeah. So Patrick wants to know: Is it pre-cocked? No. There you go. There's no pre-cocking going on, Patrick. In terms of the PD-10, at least. Right. So, yeah. You know what? Okay, let's try to turn it around here and have a conversation. I think about, like, um, the industry in whole, man. I don't know where you want to start. I don't have any plans. Like, what do you think about the state of the firearms industry? We're in 2018. What do you think's up, man? I think that, that there's um, there's two things going on. There's There's patience on one side inside the industry, and then there's frustration – uh, on another side. And really it comes down to sort of, for mo in most cases, and I noticed this at NASGW, NASGW is the wholesalers trade show that happens in October. It's one of the early, it's really the earliest major show inside the industry where the companies get together with the wholesalers and the distributors. And like, for example, we started taking orders on the PD-10 uh, then. Now the public may not see things until SHOT Show. Sometimes the public doesn't see things until NRA Show. Um, but, but NASGW is sort of the highest level industry get together for the next year. And the, what was coming out from there was patience that we are not, we had a horrible year, 2017. We know we probably had a, a, an especially horrible perspective on that year because it came off of a few years of like the highest bubble that the industry's seen, you know, in anyone's. Yeah. But I think I think there was some reports yesterday. We were reading some reports that it was the second highest gun sales, 2017. Yeah, yeah, it was still great. Exactly. If you yeah. looked at volume, I don't know if it's second highest, but there was still a lot of volume. If you look at like the last three decades, 
But if you look at it compared to the trends we have seen in politics, that in 2016 at NASGW, companies were literally showing two price sheets in some cases. They were saying, you know, here's your price sheet today, and then here's your price sheet after today. That's very normal for a trade show, right? By now, you get a special deal. Here's our NASGW special. Afterwards, you're going to get this thing. And most people see that at SHOT Show. Here's your SHOT Show special or your after SHOT Show. Well, the problem last year at NASGW is that there were three price sheets. There was at NASGW, and then there was afterwards if Hillary wins, afterward if Trump wins. <laughs> yeah. And you know, most people chose the Hillary plan because it looked better, right? The numbers, the money looked better to them. So they well, thought no, that's what was going to happen. Hillary won, you were going to have to spend a lot more money. And of course, if you'd have taken bets, not what people wanted, but if you'd have taken bets in October of 2016, most of the leadership of the gun industry would have told you it's going to be ugly, but Hillary is going to win and we need to be ready for it. And that's what, so a lot of money was invested in the be ready for it mode. And a lot of that stuff that people bought anticipating a very hard political year with Hillary is still sitting on the shelves Yeah, because we did. So, so do you think that it was, that it's justified on the industry's part that they miscalculated there? Oh, I understand why the miscalculation was made. Yeah. Do I wish that, you know, our, our retail model was less politically driven? Absolutely. But I certainly understand what happened at the end of 2016. And, and it, how it led to the frustration that a lot of people had in 2017. And honestly, a lot of smaller companies either going out of business or having a lot of larger companies too, having to lay a lot of people off. You know, there's a lot of companies that, that have let go of a lot of people over the last year because they had built a company for the 2014s and 15s and 2017 wasn't that. Um, so patience was the big word that came out of any. So, so that, so what happened there when it came to suppressors, do you think? I mean, Suppressors. Can we put that on politics as well? Or yeah, like okay. So for example, right, like this little guy is a Silencer Co. Suppressor. That Silencer Co. has not sold nearly as many of these this year as they would have expected they were going to. If one of two things had happened: one, if Hillary had won; two, if the state, the uh, Hearing Protection Act had had gone through. The Hearing Protection Act is, I think, unfortunately, the politics behind or the way that the Hearing Protection Act was campaigned for and what I think were very foolish expectations that our community put into what was going to happen under a Trump presidency, thinking that Trump was just going to come in and start, you know, get, get rid of the NFA, get rid of, uh, you know, rollback gun control act, get rid of uh, waiting periods everywhere, you know, restrict, you know, get national reciprocity. I think people really believe that was going to happen because of, you know, the NRA hype and just general human hopefulness, Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I think like uh, Smith and Wesson, uh, not Smith and Wesson, excuse me, Silencer Co. Um, if if it was just Silencer Co., I don't know that it was just Silencer Co. doing this, but just putting that out there, they kind of shot their, their, themselves in the foot. They did a lot of lobbying for it, for sure. And and I think the problem was there was this balancing act of we can make this happen, especially under Trump, weighed against but it's no guarantee. So you still might want to get in line for your suppressor if you want one. And I think a lot of people spent six, eight months of, of 2017 waiting for Hearing Protection Act or Trump to, to make the tax stamp and the NFA issue around suppressors go away. And when that didn't happen, that hurt a lot of the suppressor companies, especially Silencer Co. And 
Then of course Vegas happened and all bets were off and there's no, there's not going to be any magic, you know, pro gunness from Trump. I think that's become very apparent. So we're right back to where we were at the end of 2016 in terms of if you want to suppress her, you know, here's, there's a couple different ways to do it, but, but do it right. Don't sit around waiting for hearing protection act because that, that miracle sailed away. Like I don't see that happening in the short term. And that's no, a- I, and, and I think this kind of like up and down in the market is really, really bad. It's never a sign of a good thing. Right. Um, and ultimately it could be a sign of a collapse, I think. And I see some people saying it in the chat that, uh, 2017 was probably good for the consumer. Lots of deals out there. And I think that's why you still had really good, um, positive gun sales because right. on the consumer side, people really benefited. Guns, prices came down. You know, um, if you wanted to get into suppressors, if you weren't one of those people waiting, there were a ridiculous amount of deals out there on suppressors, et cetera. That might wash over into uh, 2018. The problem is, though, if you keep having these spikes, you know, there's going to be a real serious collapse at some point here. And I don't think we're going to get artificially held up like what happened back in uh, 2008, 2009. Yeah. What what people don't realize is is that that $299 shield or the Springfield XDS that you bought and then you sent in a coupon and got five magazines, like those guns were sold at such a low profit, low to like no profit margin in some cases. And those were 2016 guns that had to be sold, that had to be moved just to, to get some liquid capital into the distributors and into the retail market. But the buying this year at NASGW, and, and I can tell you from the orders of even a new gun that's got some real excitement around it, like the PD-10, the orders are coming very slow. And that's what we're seeing is that, that up and down. So you saw this huge spike in orders in 2016 right before the election, the election happened and the gun industry was like, just, Oh, let's all relax and wait and see Trump deliver constitutional carry and get rid of guns. Yeah. Guns for everybody. Suppressors for all. No. So now what happened over the retail counter uh, at super low prices, we saw a lot of ARs move. We saw a lot of handguns move, but there are the sales from the manufacturer level are, ground to a halt almost in a lot of cases. So that's why I think you see things like um, a little more novelty type things like the uh, the 10 millimeter coming back into popularity all of a sudden. Um, something like the Springfield XDE, which, you know, fills a niche for a double action, single action hammer gun in the subcompact frame size. But in a, in a regular year, that gun gets gets almost ignored, right? This year, it's something to talk about. It's something different. It's something new and it gets a lot of attention. So I, I think uh, something like the Maxim from Silencer Co. very well received, um, exceeded expectations for a lot of people. For me, even when I shot it, the trigger exceeded expectations, the weight, the balance exceeded expectations. Yeah, it seems like that, some people are coming around to it. I think I saw recently that Mac is starting to love his. I mm-hmm. have one. I bought it actually, though, just because um, guess what? It's the first thing like this coming out from a company. Right. You know, uh, for me as a gun guy, I I think not everyone in the market is like me, but I'm a real gun guy. I'm going to buy whether it's high or low. But if prices are really high, I'm going to buy very little, only those things I really want. And if prices are low, I'll probably do a lot more shopping. But certain things like that, um, the Maxim 9, the Hudson 9, those kind of things, you know, you think about it seriously. Yeah, they've got some novelty to them that gets the market excited, you know, And, and I think 
that's what, um, you know, I look at like the, uh, the pistol caliber carbine thing that really has exploded again this year, right? Ruger just came out with a new one. CMMG came out with their guard. Um, you yeah. see the caliber carbine divisions. And yeah, one. yeah, yeah. Um, high point. I don't know what you think about high point. High point has a 10 millimeter carbine. Yeah. Uh, Ruger, you were saying Ruger actually came out with a takedown. Yep, a new one. Nine yeah. millimeter that you can, um, I think you can adapt it and you can use Glock magazines. Um, yeah. And then Glock still doesn't make a carbine. Right. And, and you know, but now they make a short slide long grip gun that nobody was asking for. But um, that's yeah. what, what do you think about that? I don't get it. I mean, well, I do. I mean, intellectually, I understand they they put a they put a gun together to try to sell it to the military. They lost the contract, but the gun exists. Why not put it out on the market? Because they know they can sell some and they've got the molds made and they've got all that. But I look at it. And it's just like. I don't know who was asking for a long grip. And I actually posted about it earlier in social media. And I, I still haven't found anybody that's like, I really wanted a full size grip with a shorter slide. Patrick, Patrick from the firearm rack. He's there probably right now screaming that he, he was here. He was on the show last night, like, you know, telling right. us that we really want this, even if we don't know it. <laughs> I don't know. And here's what I, hate about it. I don't, I don't hate that configuration. Like mm-hmm. what I don't like about it is they took these huge step backwards in the, in the magazine area. So they have this lanyard thing in there, which no one's ever going to use. And they have this little lip on the front of the magazine, both of which with a flush magazine may hinder positive insertion and definitely could hinder the emergency extraction. So for a defensive duty military gun to have a magazine well that makes it harder to see a flush magazine and might make it harder to remove a flush magazine just makes no sense to me whatsoever. So take the top end and do whatever you want with it. But that was really a huge step backwards. Uh, yeah. Their so best in that way was their first gun with that hole cut out on the front at the bottom of the grip, the little U that you could reach and grab the front of the magazine and a thumb hole that you could put in behind the back of the magazine. That was the best gun they ever made in terms of the design for insertion and extraction. And they yeah, I think we lost you for a little bit there. Now, I even saw you. I've seen you cut down a Glock, the, the yeah. grip. Yep. Um, you know, and I know some people actually yesterday when I was talking about this, I said my brother Anonymous liked the idea of the 19X. Then I got home and he called me to tell me, hell no, he didn't like it. He was mad because I even said that on air. <laughs> but he he liked it. He's one of those people that um, like I saw you did a video on this, actually. He cut down his um he cut down the the the, the grip and then so I had the longer slide shorter. Here it's actually back at the Eastern headquarters in Florida that that uh, Glock 26L we called it and it was essentially what the the FN S9C does. <laughs> Thought I was going to sneeze. All right, so it's essentially what they do. It's a it's a mid-size top end right on top of a subcompact grip. Um, that that's essentially what that 26 L was. And what, what I really love, the reason I carry, I wrote an article for my blog about it. It's one of the last ones I wrote in 2017. Um, the reason that I really like the, uh, XDS four inch, and I'm going to go ahead and clear it. Uh, a world it's clear. Mm-hmm. The reason I really fell in love with this gun was all that weight out in front of the hand. So a four inch barrel, uh, with that extra weight, and it may not seem like much, but 0.7 inches of slide and barrel extending okay. out the arm gives you a lot more shootability in a gun. So short grip, normal size barrel is the configuration. You know, I've seen guys come through classes with 19s chopped to 26 size. I've seen people come through classes with 
uh, 17s chopped down to 19 size grips. But I've never seen anybody show up with like a magic extended grip area behind a short yeah. slide and barrel. Yeah. Now, my friend Walter at Safety Harbor Firearms says that he thinks Glock's going to sell a shit ton of them. I, I would agree with that, but I'm not saying that because I agree with it, I think it's a good idea. I think Glock is just going to sell a crap ton of whatever they make, and that's why they're not innovating. And I wanted to talk to you about that because um, – and I've seen you – I think you do want innovation in 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 our space, right? Oh, yeah. Like, th- like take the Hudson, for example, right? Like um, what Sly and his family there and their, their company have done is cool. Like I love the fact that there's an American-made gun that's got a lot of kind of uh, evolution and some innovation in the recoil and it's different, right? The trigger is, is different. I don't, I don't understand why the trigger is hinged. The, the tab is hinged differently. I didn't find it that comfortable. You know, I don't know who really needs that gun, but I'm happy that it exists. I'm happy that it's an American startup. I've, I'm happy that people are excited about it. I want them to deliver a gun that people fall in love with and say, that's cool because I'll tell you what, any problem that his gun has now that it's out in the market, every time there's a problem with that gun, it makes people more skeptical, more skeptical about my startup gun company, right? Like uh, I'm going to let them work the problems out before I buy one because the people that ran right out and bought those H nines may be having problems with them, right? Because I've, I've mm-hmm. seen some problems with them. I, the one I shot that was a production gun had some problems. I don't want that for the PD-10. It may be inevitable that the audience is going to find them, but I want them to find one out of 5,000 guns, not one out of 50 guns. And if that's what they're finding, like the Remington, right? Remington's one of the biggest gun companies in the history of Earth. They put a gun out, the R-51, that was like, I don't even know how it made it to market the first right. time. And and people were like, well, if Remington can't figure it out, how is Pincus and his like five guys going to figure it out? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that I think it is possible for you to figure it out because you're not as big as Remington. Yo, there's definitely some advantages yeah. to being small and being nimble and being able to control it. But right. like Grant Cunningham was involved in that uh, K6 gun. He's the designer on that revolver from Kimber. But he'll, he'll be the first one to tell you that that gun is not 100% what he would have done. That there were certain compromises that control over because of the way they they contracted with him as a parent company. I didn't want to do like the Rob version of the, you know, Smith and Wesson M and P or the Rob, the ICE training version of even the Springfield XDS. If I was going to design a gun, I'm going to put my name on it, my logo on it. I'm a hundred percent. Like it's not yeah. going out with me saying, well, I didn't really want the trigger that way, but I had to, you know, to get everything else I wanted, I had to let them decide how to do the trigger. Like that's just not, not what I'm doing here. Yeah. And also like the thing I I would like to tell people, just think about this. It's always easy to say, oh, you know what? I can make a phone. I can make an iPhone better than Apple <laughs> or I can make a gun better than this person or that person. Actually go out there and try to do it and see what happens to you. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, and hopefully you do make it and you do make a better gun and you could still go broke doing that. You know, so it's a balance of like actually being able to go out there and do this and spend and and be able to spend all this money if you're starting from scratch. And then what a lot of us what we're fighting against now is you have these big, massive, established companies that have been out there for a long time making these guns and making money off of them. They have the ability to take chances and, and bring in new stuff and innovate in the space and they won't do it. You know, and we're kind of stuck in the middle there where we want to see some new things or at least people to listen um, to, to what it is we want. 
I mean, let's look at like Springfield gets crushed with the XDE because it doesn't make a lot of sense to a lot of people. The Glock gets crushed with the 19X. Now, both companies will sell a lot of those guns, but we're here, you know, pontificating about how the, the designs weren't really what people wanted or weren't exactly what people needed. But at the end of the day, you know, maybe, maybe shame on us because they're, they are still those giant companies. Now, what, what I've, it's interesting. People, sometimes people ask, well, wait a minute, Rob, you carry an XDS, you're building your own gun. XDS sponsors your tour. You do videos with FNs and with other guns and that come across that some of the Eagle industry guns or a grand power gun. Well, I'm an educator first, right? I'm an educator. I try to be a leader in the, in the firearms community. If my gun designer, like resume line is like eight down, you know? Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm designing a gun. Uh, I have an interest in that gun being what I want it to be. Underneath that, I have an interest in it selling and making a profit and generating some revenue so I can buy my wife some new flowers or whatever. Like the, but at the end of the day, I'm still an educator first. And I still have to talk intellectually about why the Springfield or the Glock or the M&P may be the best gun for my audience and why another gun probably isn't. And here's why. And right now, I'm not carrying a, a PD-8. I'm not carrying a PD-10 because we haven't proven the gun. The gun's not in a place where I can do that, nor would I expose the company to the liability of carrying a gun that we haven't even released to the public, right? So I'm carrying an XDS because it's the best gun on the market for me, just like it was two years ago. And quite honestly, if we only come out with the PD-10 at my frame size and the way I carry, it's it's harder for me to carry a PD-10 because of the length of the, the, the grip than it is for me to carry an XDS. So I guarantee you, like, that's a problem that, that people are concerned about. People have asked, like, well, you know, internally, well, wait a minute, Rob, how are you going to be able to represent Springfield as the tour sponsor when you have your own gun out there? Well, yeah, how do you, how do you balance all these things? Right. Because, you know, yeah. are there conflicts of interest? What's it, what exactly is going on here? That, those questions get asked a lot. And, and the fact is that I have, a, I think I have established a great track record in 20 plus years in the industry of being able to wear multiple hats when I, when I'm uh, on a TV show sponsored by, uh, I don't know, when I did SWAT Magazine TV, Bravo Company was one of our sponsors. So I was using a Bravo Company rifle. Bravo Company makes great rifles, not hard to do. I wouldn't accept Bravo Company as a sponsor of the show if they weren't a quality company. Fast forward, the tour that year, the last year of SWAT Magazine TV, sponsored by Bravo Company, the tour was sponsored by Daniel Defense. Okay. Daniel Defense also makes a great rifle. So when I'm doing tour things, I'm carrying a Daniel Defense rifle. I don't, I don't see that as disingenuous. What I see as disingenuous is, oh, CMMG is the sponsor of the tour in 2017. So I'm only going to talk about CMMG guns. And if anybody else mentions any other gun, I'm going to at least insinuate that they're not good enough. There's lots of great guns out there. My integrity comes from being able to tell you why I would accept CMMG as a tour sponsor and why I believe their gun is one you should consider. And here, let me point out some of the features that I really like about it. Yeah. Doesn't the only gun for me doesn't mean it's the only gun I'll ever have. You know, this gun is also staged for defensive use in my home. And this is one of the mag tactical guns that I did with them when we did something we called the Air 15. So it was an ICE spec gun. We made a couple hundred, then 250 of them. And they were, they're a magnesium alloy. And these were some of the first guns on the market that were at the five pound mark with right. uh, an optic. And, you know, we had a pencil thin barrel and we had uh, the Aimpoint uh, micro optic on there. And we had a gun with the, 
mission first uh, minimalist stock that was available to people at five, five pounds. And how did that work out? Because I know that I think there were some issues with that, right? But there are places that are trying to bring back out the magnesium because it seems like right now, no one's going to accept polymer. Although I think polymer is a valid, um, is a valid option in there, but you have the guys that will never, they'll never use a polymer upper lower rifle. Be given more of a chance than it's gotten um ergonomically i don't think it's aesthetically as pleasing but functionally and fundamentally it should be viable um the magnesium alloy worked great they had some internal issues at their company um this gun runs like a top they had unfortunately they had a production run that was out of spec and i think it really gave them a black eye you know as a young company that was coming out to market with it with a gun they had uh, just they, there was one one place where the gun was out of spec and it caused a lot of problems with the recoil buffer tube and that that retention pin and that that put a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths. So mm-hmm. that was a that was kind of a one off project. It's one of the very few projects I've done where it was like putting my name or my logo on uh, a configuration of an existing gun. You know, people have been doing that forever, right? There's the Clint Smith, the Thunder Ranch guns there's uh the, the, i'm sure there's like jerry mitchellick might have a version of his yeah. gun performance center um there's been uh the vickers you know gun there's been a kyle lamb mnp gun uh the jack revolver carbine from uh travis haley like people putting their name on an evolution or a color or a you know accessory package on a gun that's been going on for a long time from the training industry we haven't had somebody design a gun from scratch from the training side, right? Cooper gets a lot of credit with the Bren 10, but that gun existed before he suggested the tweaks that he did. Um, Bill Jordan gets a lot of credit for the Smith and Wesson model 19, the combat Magnum. Um, but that was again, more of a tweaking of configurations. Uh, there that's really about it, right? You go back to like Walker, you know, (laughs) Walker working with Samuel Colt to design, uh, uh, that revolver back in the day, the first 44 revolver, uh, the black powder gun. There, so are you, are you nervous about this, thinking about it in this light? Like, you know, um, I've been here, you know, I think originally, yeah, I think when all that stuff started dawning on me, um, it probably is one of the things that's made this project take a little bit longer is it became even more important to me and my integrity that this, this works or that it's, it's, it's a gun that when, when the problems are discovered by the marketplace or when the version two becomes necessary it or, or, I would say intellectually necessary, right? We may learn so much in that first batch of 6,000 from people actually using them over time in a lot of different conditions that we say, you know what, we can do that mag catch a little bit better. Let's change the the mag catch or we can do the slide stop a little bit better. Let's change the slide stop. I don't, we're not going to release a gun that isn't going to work, but a gun that could be improved upon by influence and, and feedback from the market my, my training programs change every year because of influence from the market. Why would my gun designs not? Mm-hmm. Okay. And, um, you know, ju- what do you think when like this whole question of balancing being in the industry on the industry side, but then there's still people that are turning to you as consumers, you know, how do you balance that? And then how do you deal with going back to what we were talking about in the beginning with freedom when there's people, you know, that say, Hey, I want you to tell me about these guns and everything, but I don't want you to make any money from the industry. You should starve. You know, like, how do you, how do you feel about that? I think there's a naivete, you know, again, people want to, people are going to attack, um, 
you know, I don't know, Larry Vickers, because he's talking about Bravo company guns only. Well, five years ago, he was talking about Daniel defense guns only. That's how he chooses to do it. Right. Um, Rob Latham has been with Springfield forever and you won't see him, you know, demoing with a Glock saying, well, here's some good things about the Glock, but I don't like it as much as I like my Springfield. Is it, I mean, is it a crime if a company pays you to, you know, for lack of a better term here, shill for their gun, is that a crime? It's, it's absolutely not. I think what people need to do is decide, you know, and, so, and I, I, was, I was just gonna say, and I'll get attacked for the way I do it, which is mm-hmm. I'll let Springfield sponsor the tour, but I might do something with FN during the summer and then something with, um, you know, Smith and Wesson during the, the spring, during the, the fall. And I may be talking about my avidity gun, which is always now going to be there in the background. But then come spring again, I'm on the tour that is sponsored by Springfield. And people don't understand how you can do that with integrity. To me, that's kind of the easiest way is it, I think it's incredibly disingenuous to suggest there's only one gun this week that anybody should ever consider because mm-hmm. they have one pain. Um, and and, and I, I, I have a hard time understanding how that works, right? Yeah. Because as instructors, as educators in the training side, we know some people's hands just don't fit a Glock, for example. Well, I don't care how much Glock is paying you. Like when I go into a relationship with Springfield, I say right away, like you can't imagine that I'm only going to recommend Springfield guns during the tour because some people's hands might fit an M&P better. I might have a cop who's issued a SIG 320. I'm not going to not demo with his gun or not teach him how to shoot his gun or tell him his agency was foolish to give it to him. Like I've got to work with that. The idea that I've got to be able to say, here's a selection of guns that I think are good. Springfield is the gun I'm going to demo with today because they're the guys that are underwriting part of this tour. And by the way, I happen to carry one of their guns, but it also works the other way. I'm not out there recommending the Springfield range officer as a good carry gun, right? I generally don't, I I don't think that 1911s are generally a good idea at all for defensive carry at this point. Uh, You know, when we have so many good modern striker fired guns, I think guns without a manual safety are a better choice. And Springfield knows that. They don't think I'm out here shilling the range officer as a good option. They know that I'm primarily looking at the XD, the XDM, and the XDS as the options for people interested in modern striker-fired guns. But that I've got to put them on an equal level with the other guns that I know to be really good and reliable, the, the VP9, the, the upgraded 320s, the uh, Glocks, and the M&Ps. Yeah. I don't think you could do anything for a company genuinely if you lose your credibility. And I think it's always a balance, right? If you're honest with folks out there, if you're honest with people of what the financial dealings are with things related to you being an expert that they may rely, because whether you like it or not, people are going to rely on you at some point. I'm constantly telling people I don't know shit about guns. It always cracks me up when I read, uh, when I'm reading like a YouTube comment uh, about, and I do guns, cars, my channel's lifestyle, right? The other day I was reading because um, I I never had a pickup truck, right? In my life, right. never owned one. I bought one and then I bought a four by four one and I went to try to figure out how to use the four by four. And someone was mad at me because I couldn't use the four by four. It's the same thing with the guns. I never tell anyone that I'm an expert, but it's always funny when someone comes along and goes, you don't know shit. Yeah. <laughs> this is the proof that you don't know anything because whether you like it or not, people are going to, if you do this kind of thing repeatedly, people are going to look at you. They're going to put some kind of like thing on you, you know? Um, so you have to go with that like if i'm not an expert in teaching people defensive shooting skills i don't know who is right like i've spent the numbers 
teaching, the number of classes I've taught, the number of students I've been exposed to, the number of people I've watched, I may be wrong about some things and I'm, I readily admit that, right? Like I, I changed my mind. I look back and say, oh, I can't believe I was teaching that five or six years ago. But, but how, if we're going to use the word expert ever, how other than repeated exposure to a certain block of information or repeated exposure to certain circumstances and certain problems and solving those problems over and over again, how else are we going to define it? Yeah, right. And people might just put it on you. So if someone puts it on you, well, then, OK, so now that's on you and you have to deal with that. And I think if you're honest with them, with the folks about that and then they know that's good. And I think people have to give you a certain amount of leeway to understand that you have to make a living doing this, you know, unless you believe in communism, you have to expect that people are going to make a living doing this. If they degrade their uh, integrity or credibility, like I said, everyone's responsible for their own honor. So that's on you. The flip side of that is also with the company where, okay, uh, you know, I believe in this product that you have and I'm telling folks, Hey, this is a great product. The company also has to give you the leeway where you say to them, you know what, this sucks right here. Or this thing that you're doing is dead wrong. Sometimes I get these NDAs and these non-competes put in front of me that are just ludicrous that I just like, like scratch out or strike through entire paragraphs and sections. You know, I'm part of the, the uh, Silencer Co. ambassador program, right? So that, that entails like a, a relationship, right? Like, okay, Rob, we want to make sure you have the equipment you need. We want to help you out with that part of it because you're going to be educating the public about this stuff and we want you to be familiar with our product. Cool. So I make sure people know about the features of the product and, and that's, that's really about it. But when I got like a boilerplate, like NDA, non I'm like, well, wait a minute, I might, and it's kind of like we were talking about, I might be talking about um, a, a Gemtech suppressor. I might be talking about the advantages of uh, one of the SIG suppressors or something. Like the idea that I'm going to only ever mention Silencer Co. or ever be seen in a picture of Silencer this can't happen. Like not the way I've set up my business, not the way I interact with my audience or the industry over the last 20 plus years. I can't do that kind of exclusivity. And quite frankly, when, as soon as I say that, almost always the companies are like, oh yeah, okay, that makes sense. Like even with USCCA, like I certify instructors all over the world who go out and teach defensive shooting. So just because I'm collaborating with them for a defensive shooting instructor development program doesn't mean that all of a sudden everything I've ever done gets cut off. But I understand why their lawyer asked. So I think we have to we lost you there for a We lost you for a quick second. Just repeat that last part. This, this, the USA, USCCA, I understand why their lawyer asked for mm-hmm. me to never do anything with anyone again, right? Like not work with any entity that published firearms educational material. Well, <laughs> yeah, okay. That's a nice ask, but no. <laughs> yeah, it's a nice ask, but no. Um, and as long as everybody understands like why my integrity demands I say no, and I, but you know, no disrespect taken. I understand why you asked, but that's not how this yeah. is going to I think that's what people have to realize out there that we do say no, even though, even if you don't necessarily see it. I know it's tough for some people because the audience out there who I talk to, who I do care about, you know, I'm doing this not just for myself. I'm trying to, you know, help give them a voice. They see some folks out there who they think just say yes to everything. Um, and if you truly genuinely say yes to everything, that's a problem. But I think they also don't see where we say no. Like I've, there's so many companies um, in, in, in this world of everyone making an AR-15. I've spoken to companies that are making an AR-15 that when you handle it, and like I said, I'm not an expert, but when you handle it, it's not smooth and all that kind of stuff. Like, you know, just pulling the charging handle. I just do what I would do if I walked into the store, you know, and I'm trying to tell them this is terrible. And then at the same time, you want a whole bunch of money for this when everyone, you know, people are selling AR-15s for like 
four or 500 bucks, don't do it. And they're like, screw you, you don't know anything. So people may not realize that we say no a lot or we tell folks, don't do this, do it this way. And then so, you know, sometimes when you see us working with specific people is because we found people who we can actually say no to or send them in a different direction or say, hey, that's a good idea, but this is what folks want. And that's always a tough battle to have here. But if there's not people like you or me or other guys out there that are actually talking to these companies, then they're just really going to do whatever the hell they want. They are, and they're gonna they're gonna try. It's not that's not necessarily bad. Like they're gonna try, but they're gonna not succeed as well if they don't have that bridge, you know. And, and hopefully, I have established myself as a trustworthy steward of a company's reputation and as a trustworthy collaborator in terms of the view of of a certain segment of the audience. So I I, I see myself as existing between those entities. And quite frankly, I will have those people who do that for me with the Avidity Arms Project. I will have people who act as the intermediary between me when I'm wearing my manufacturer hat and the audience, right? And probably as the years go on, I'll probably gravitate more into that role because I won't be traveling the country 300 days a year teaching 60, 70 classes at some point. Mm-hmm. And I'll need those other people who are more in touch with the problems the everyday student's facing to help me understand what the 20th gun from Avidity Arms should be. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, you know what? We've been doing this for two hours. We should probably wrap it up here. I want to give you a chance to, uh, you know, tell us about the things that you have coming up. I know you spoke about it a little bit, but, you know, let's go through that. The centerpiece of the training here is the Personal Defense Network training tour. Um, PersonalDefenseNetwork.com. If you haven't been over there, that's the hub of all the intellectual educational information. A lot of it comes out through my social media too, but like you, I mean, I'm talking about cars, I'm talking about wine, I'm talking about my daughter, you know, there's all kinds of stuff going on in social media. If you just want the training info and you don't want any of that stuff, personaldefensenetwork.com. It's not just me. It's a great team of guys uh, talking about every aspect, legal, uh, armed defense, unarmed defense, tactics, the gear reviews, all that kind of stuff. We've also uh, now partnered on the digital side with SWAT Magazine. So SWATMag.com is a sister site for PersonalDefenseNetwork.com. A lot of great information from the writers of SWAT Magazine, as well as new video collaborators we've got, um, with some more content for the armed professionals, the military, law enforcement, security guys. Okay, um, cool. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, that's it. Like PersonalDefenseNetwork.com will have the training tour information. We talked about ICETraining.us, and we talked about AvidityArms.com. And, uh, and anywhere on social media. Like if you can use social media, you can find me and uh, I'm always putting links and information out. And again, you get more of the behind the scenes stuff at my personal Facebook page. And if you go to Rob Pincus uh, Pro, then you're gonna get uh, really just the, some of the politics um, and, and all the training there. Okay, very cool. And I see that Cyrus 308 has a, he wants me to ask his question before we go. You're going to have to, uh, you know what, Cyrus, put your question up there again. I'll, I'll give it a couple minutes here before we go. And there's a lot of questions about grip zone. <laughs> Did you mention grip zone somewhere here, Robin? Did I miss that? No, no. I don't know why people are so excited about that. <laughs> yeah, let's have the grip zone conversation for a second. You've never gotten more free press. Like, like I was joking about you put, I saw you use my picture from New Year's Eve, right? Like uh-huh. <laughs> you're a free rent in my haters brains, right? Mm-hmm. Like that kind of, like, I don't know if people understand what they're doing. Like if you want to have a conversation about grip zone, is it silly to put it on the side of the gun? Yeah. It's silly to put it on the side of the gun, but it doesn't hurt anything. Like it doesn't change anything about the gun. They didn't compromise the grip 
shape or anything else to put grip zone on the gun. Like it was a, it was a marketing decision and it kind of became, it's so big that it <laughs> thing, but how many people that supposedly don't like Springfield have perpetuated, uh, you know, consumer knowledge about Springfield's, uh, grip evolution, the mod two grip evolution by talking about grip zone. Like, thanks. Hater. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, that gun, before, now the M and P, um, the M&P 2.0 is another one that's in the same vein, but I think that the uh, evolution of that grip around an existing gun was one of the best ergonomic evolution or updates that I've seen from any company. That Mod 2 gun fits a lot of people really, really, really well. Um, the M&P 2.0 really improved the ergonomics of the M&P gun. I, I think that's okay to come out with a gun that just changed the ergonomics a little bit you know, a lot of people, all they wanted from Glock was get rid of the finger grooves. Uh, but every time they get rid of the finger grooves, these last few releases, they also do some other things that may not make as much sense. Yeah. Um, you know what? I, I have seen the grip zone thing, but I didn't really realize that it irks so many people. Um, yeah. What would be great is a T-shirt that says grip zone and the arrows going right here. Here's I, I got your grip zone right here. <laughs> last year, at, for, um, this is one of the 3D print guns. But I, I did add a um, <laughs> grip space <laughs> and light zone. Yeah. Well, you know what I think is funny on your gun? Just turn it so we can see the the back of the strap, the back. Yeah. With the, with your logo on it there. That's there's right. going to be someone out there training and they're going to look at their hand and the oh, palm sure. of their hand is going to have your logo all up in it. It's going to be right there. There's a lot. of I, I put a picture of this out. This is um, the, the, the uh, texturing. So this was the color coding for the. Uh, mold guys to understand where I wanted certain heavy texture and where I wanted lighter texture. So that's what this color was. I put that in social media. I, I think you should have made around your logo way, way more aggressive. So people just oh, yeah. get like permanent, yeah, no, permanently branded. The front, just like the stippling on the old 1911s, right? That right there and right there are the most aggressive areas of, uh, of, yeah. of the texture. So for sure, yeah, no, people are going to be walking around with the... Uh, yeah, they're going to be walking around with your logo. Okay, so Cyrus308, his question is... It, oh, wait, wait, where did it go? Hold on a second. Wait, let's see. I saw it here, and then I just... Like, there's a ton of other questions that went back. Okay, here we go. Is Rob coming to Aurora Sportsman's Club? I want to train with him in Waterman, Illinois. That sounds really familiar. If that's the one that's just um, inland, just, just kind of west from Chicago... I, and I believe that like the president of the club or one of the main guys at the club there has a radio show out of Chicago. And he was a student of mine at the Kansas State Rifle Range, uh, or sorry, Illinois State Rifle Range last year. I think we are trying to set a course up there at Aurora. Okay, so there you go. So and if, if folks out there want to do something um, to do that little extra push to get you to come to Aurora, what can they do? Uh, info at or training at ICE training.us or just go to the ic training.us and hit the contact uh, request to host a class or ask for updates about um, where i might be going you'll you'll get it that way absolutely now we've got like a whole conversation going on about grip zones and what you should put on the you know what you should put for the texture some people want snowflakes <laughs> you know some people i think looks like some people want gun free so <laughs> or no gun-free zone, whatever. We will have that, those conversations in the future. Rob's been, to me, I think, a great guest. We would love to have you on again, man, if you... Yeah, that'd be awesome. Yeah. Because yeah. you, you do this, you're, you're five nights a week. Yeah, yeah. Oh. 
Yeah. So if you have something that you want to talk about or when the gun actually comes out or whatever, please get in touch with us. But we'd love to invite you to come back on. All right. And I'm like, you never know with me. So, you know, you or, or, or Lola, just if you like, if a guest cancels last minute, it's like, hey, Rob, They're like, yeah, we can steaks, but, you know, let's chat. Absolutely. Yeah, man. Maybe if there's some new stuff cars. that comes up. Because at oh. some point, we got to talk about cars. Because I know it was funny you were talking about the four wheel drive thing, but because you're an all wheel drive guy, right? You're an Audi guy. Um, no, I'm not really a, a, any kind of guy. I do not discriminate when it comes to uh, the things I really love in this world. So like women, I do not discriminate when it comes to it. Guns, I don't discriminate and cars neither. I do have an Audi. This is the first time ever. It's freaking awesome. All wheel drive is great, but I am trying to experience all the cars. I want all positions. So I got a pickup truck because I never, ever had all one. All the yeah. All right. Yeah. So, yeah, we should we should actually talk about cars. I really do. But I'm not an expert on cars. I just know what I like. What's what's your uh, what's your favorite car? Uh, I'm a BMW guy. So I have a a 550i, but X drive and it's, you know, I had an M3 uh, for a while and and looked at the X5M. But with especially in Colorado, with my wife using it quite often as her daily driver, um, the M5 is a little bit much and it's, they don't do the X drive and the M's. So, uh, except for the, the SUV one. So we went with the 550i sedan. I think it's, it's probably one of the best sedans on earth if you want a luxury sports sedan. So I'm a big fan of that car. Um, cool. I like the M2. BMW has an M2. That's real okay. sexy. The little M's are, are awesome, yeah. but not when you got a two year old and a car seat. And yeah. Yeah. It's not practical. <laughs> yeah. Well, just me running around in it. The M2 is, uh, is, is quite, quite sporty. Okay, cool. So right now you're a B- so you've had a, quite a few BMWs then. Yeah, I've had, I've had a, a handful. The uh, historically, I'm, I really I got into a truck thing where for years, you know, if you go, I had sports cars growing up. I had sports cars in in through the '90s and then into the 2000s, and then I switched over to like all trucks. So I had the FJ and the Toyota 4Runner and a yeah, I've seen some of your videos with an FJ. Actually, my brother has an FJ. He's an FJ oh, guy. And I love the Toyota trucks. They are they are awesome. Their drivetrain leaves a little bit desired at this point. Like they're a little bit outdated on the Forerunner. Yeah, I've got yeah, I've got a Forerunner as well. I like it, but yeah, they they Toyota just won't upgrade that Forerunner for anything. That. I won't buy another. I won't buy another one of those until they upgrade it. So I'm, I'm actually yeah, well. You're never buying another one. I'll tell you that right now. But so I don't. I, I'm intrigued. I'll tell you what. Talking about not not um, discriminating. I'm actually intrigued by the the diesel engine for the 2019 Jeep. Yes. I've owned a Jeep in the past and I kind of swore off Jeep, especially for any kind of long highway involved driving. But if they come out with that diesel engine uh, a couple years that uh, you might might actually see a Jeep in uh, in the collection. Yeah, I think they did a lot of things with the new Jeep, man. There's a it's it's really improved. They really went out of their way to make like removing the roof easier or dropping down the windshield and and all these different kinds of things. And I heard that the diesel one is actually got more horses. Yeah, it's going to be more powerful. Yeah, no, it is. Yeah. It's really a complete, like, I, I kind of, I wish the FJ would have had, you know, because overseas, uh, obviously Toyota does a lot of diesel stuff, but here in that, in that mid-range, the Forerunners and the FJ, they really don't do much with it. So I don't know. I'm, uh, I'm actually, I have not decided what the 2018 tour vehicle is going to be yet. And uh, I will probably, uh, I'll probably announce that in late February, early March, but it's something I have to do in the next two months is decide. Um, yeah. You should do a poll, man. You should do a poll like on um, Instagram or something. I've done that. Yeah. I've done that in the past. I've said, you know, which of these vehicles and it was funny, you know, almost everybody, you know, right away they come at you with the American made American made. And you get a lot of votes for the Ford Raptor and stuff like that. 
And the thing is, I, I can't take the American-made thing, given as many foreign brand cars that are actually built in the U.S. and as many U.S. brand yeah. cars sourced with parts from all over the world. My answer is always like, when you want to comment from your American-made electronic device about how I should have an American-made car, I'll gladly listen. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, I had a Challenger. I had a Dodge Challenger, which was freaking awesome, but it was made in Canada. <laughs> it was some of the stuff was made in Mexico. Some of it was made in Canada. Uh, you know, I have an I is is price an object? Is price an object in the tour? Uh, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't. I would uh, not taking anything like I wouldn't take the 550 out on the tour. I mean, it's going to be something because I was going to say, get the Lambo SUV, man. Yeah, no price. Price going to sell a lot of PD dents. The or the tour sponsorship fees. Are- <laughs> That Lambo SUV, but no, not really. $40,000. So $40,000 for the Forerunner, and it got me through three tours. Um, I'm not put, I'm not ruling out using it again. I don't think I'm going to use it again this year, but a $40,000 car that gets me through three years of touring and, you know, gets used as a daily driver that I abuse, uh, I think it's a oh, pretty- 40000 Okay, I was going to say, if it wasn't, because, you know, like trucks, pickup trucks now are way over 50. You're talking like 50, uh-huh. 60. Going all the way up. I was going to say a power wagon is pretty badass. I have a um, power wagons are um, a buddy yeah. of mine has one of the Rebel, uh, the Dodge brand. Yeah, I have a Rebel. It's awesome. Um, that's kind of a cool one. The uh, and yeah. the, Ford, the new Ford Raptors are amazing. You know, Latham, yeah. the older Raptors, the new ones are even more impressive. Yeah, um, the new the new Raptor is amazing, man. Um, they went aluminum with everything and turbo. Even though it's a V six, it's pretty badass. We well, Springfield has one logoed up that was at, at uh, the night of the Saint, even a pre a pre release production one. Um, that the guys from uh, uh, who was it, Greg Greg Fouts was out there with it, and and that thing was incredibly impressive. Uh, yeah. In way. So I'm not ruling anything out of it. And I, I you know what I almost used years ago, and instead of this Forerunner, I almost went with a CTSV wagon. Okay. <laughs> that was definitely a bug. No, that's badass. A CTSV wagon. Um, those you can't even get those easily. Yeah, you know, it was very, it was hard to find men because um, I wasn't going to pay for a new one. I couldn't afford to buy a new one for the tour trucks. I was looking at a few of them that were used, but it's just now they're, now they're a rarity because they've, they've said they're not going to make any more wagons. Um, no. You can't get the BMW wagon, full size ones. The AMG wagon, my father-in-law has one of those AMG uh, 570 horsepower wagons. That's amazing, but I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not going with, with a $110,000 car. It's not an option for the tour. So, um, so I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. If people want to put in their comments what they think now, having heard this, what they uh, have a good suggestion, put it in the comments. Yeah, someone says a Porsche Cayenne Turbo FTW. I like that. Who said that? Okay, Brian Quick. <laughs> good one. No more douchier car brand. <laughs> I don't think I could do it. I almost did when I got the M3. I was looking at a 911, and then I just, nah, can't do it. Yeah. Um, yes, please. You know what? That is a good thing. Put in the comments what you think would be a good vehicle. We'll come back. Maybe when you when you announce that, Rob, come back on and we'll talk cars, man. All right. Sounds good. All right. Awesome. Thanks for coming on. We really enjoyed it. I want to thank everyone for watching, everyone for sharing. Even up to now, we still have we've got like over 100 people watching us. We appreciate you guys hanging in there with us. I know we're going a little bit late. We'll be back tomorrow. Um, Tomorrow, we've got Derek Gray. That's 50 percent tactical. Do you know Derek Gray, Rob? Yeah. Okay, he's 50% tactical. You should look him up. Really cool guy. He's going to be on tomorrow. I think we also have uh, Kevin Dixie on. So I will see. Someone says GTR. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 Nissan I, GTR. Nismo. Nismo version. Wait, you know, you're familiar with the VR4s from back in the day, back in the 90s? The Mitsubishi 3000 GT VR4s? 
uh, I know the the three thousand um, the three thousand GT. I didn't know there was a VR four version. VR was the twin turbo, all wheel drive, all wheel steering kind of grand touring sports mobile monster Japanese supercar thing. It was before the GTR was the ultimate crazy Japanese car. Mm-hmm. That was the one. I had two of those back in the, in the nineties in the late. Oh 90s. wow! Okay, yes. Wow. I, I wouldn't rule something like that out. The GTR yeah. is an impressive vehicle. Yeah, you, I mean, you can go Viper, you know, uh, Corvette's coming out with something really bad. It's got a hatchback. I got to have a cool, like, I got to have a, a truck vault back there with the rifles and the gear. Yeah, you got to remember I drive, Corvette. So I got to be able to drive onto some of those dirt ranges and things like that. But Oh, okay. Yes, it has to be off-road. Yeah, it has to be off-road. a sports car, but at the end of the day, it's going to have to be a wagon, you know. Or a, uh, or a truck. Yeah, pickup truck. All right, we can go on about this forever. <laughs> I will see you again. Thanks a lot, Rob. I really appreciate it, man. Uh, thank you. Peace out, everyone. Thanks for joining. Thanks for everyone who sponsors us on Patreon slash Hank Strange. Uh, thanks to Big Daddy Guns, Safety Harbor Firearms, and Andrew's Custom Leather. We're out. Peace. Rob, stay right there.